0: it's only six minutes so it's only a little over the third the length sorry so it's only a little over the oh i said the again good gosh i don't even i don't have that written i just screwing up Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not-so-good old days of World Championship Wrestling, series by series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and if you call our hotline, there's a phone poll to see whether Alec Pridgen should be allowed to co-host a podcast. Now, let me bring in my co-host, Alec Pridgen. Thanks, I guess? (laughs) I guess possibly for the last time. (laughs) How's it going tonight, Al?
1: Good, how's it going with you?
0: It's going alright, going alright. Tonight, we're taking a look at Slamboree 1995, a Legends reunion. Reused show title.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's not the Legends reunion, this is the third one, I guess.
0: I I guess so. Slamboree 1995 was held on May 21st, 1995, at the Bayfront Arena in our own St. Petersburg, Florida. Go us. In front of 7,000 fans. It's recorded as sold out, but with only 4,700 paid. And it earned 130,000 pay per view buys. And it's pretty cool to get to cover a show from St. Pete finally. Mm-hmm. Too bad the actual Bayfront Arena is not there anymore. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Both attendance and pay per view buys are up from last year, but it's worth noting that the two prior shows in 1995, Super Brawl and Uncensored, both earned about two hundred twenty thousand pay per view buys. Nineteen ninety five in general is gonna bounce around in the hundred thousand to two hundred thousand range. Though, if I recall correctly, the Starcade this year actually drops a little bit below, around ninety five thousand, I think it was. That sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. Shame because that was a good Starcade.
1: It's because it was wasn't sold as here's this big event show you got to see. It's right. Here's New Japan for some reason.
0: Yeah, it was a very strange one. I believe our comment on it was it's. A weird show if you're already a fan, but if you were looking to introduce someone to WCW, it's actually terrific. Yeah, for sure. Because you don't have to know anything about storylines. It was one of our favorites.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: Before this slambury, there were four matches shown on the WCW Sunday night TV show, Main Event. The Blue Bloods, Lord Stephen Regal and Earl Robert Eaton, beat Los Especialistas, Steve Austin beat Eddie Jackie. Sergeant Craig Pitbull Pittman beat Mark Starr. And finally, in the only match where I actually recognize all of the competitors, (laughs) Meng beat Brian Pillman. (laughs) There was a bit of story content in the Blue Bloods match that will matter for tonight. The Blue Bloods beat up the Nasty Boys prior to the match, and Brian Nobbs got the worst of it.
1: Oh, I do have a little bit of trivia pop up for you, though.
0: Okay. David Canal. He
1: is Los Especialitas, uh <laughs> 2, excuse me. He, until very recently, I think possibly due to COVID issues, owned a uh, sports bar in Largo. Oh, how interesting. It's funny, I looked it up when I was doing one of the shows where he's mentioned a dark match, and then I drove by it like the next day. I'm like, oh, there it is. Oh, how neat. It was on my, on my way to work, actually.
0: Well, we got a connection to someone that we didn't know that we had a connection to. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I figure it's the only time it's ever going to come up on a show. It's so my show now,
0: <laughs> most likely. Unfortunately, okay. but you know,
1: yeah. nothing against him. It's just the way he was booked.
0: Yeah, maybe, maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll be surprised. That's true. Probably shows up in a World War III at some point. Lord knows, everyone did.
1: I mean, if Super Giant ninja can make it into one of those, anyone
2: can.
0: <laughs> We're in the midst of the Hogan era now. So, how will a show that so far been focused on honoring the legends of the past? fair in a swiftly changing present? To find out, let's go to the ring.
3: The superstars of yesterday. The megastars of today. And the legends of tomorrow. What a memorable night it will be. World Championship Wrestling presents Slamboree 95, a Legends Reunion.
0: We open with a video package showing a mix of footage of the older legends and modern stars, though this time there's no real dividing line in the video, and indeed we only get a couple clips of the legends before we head right into the modern stuff. The narrator lays out the show's premise. This is about the stars of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Past, present, and future. It kind of makes the Legends Reunion subtitle a little less than fitting, though. A bit, yeah. Eric Bischoff welcomes us to the show alongside Bobby the Brain Heenan and Mean Gene Okerlund. Eric notes that he's filling in for Tony Schiavone. Tony actually had to have neck surgery around this time. He's talked about it since. Apparently, it was a very severe neck problem, resulting from a couple car accidents years earlier. When he eventually visited a surgeon, the surgeon slapped a neck brace on him right away to protect his neck... And told him that if he had one more accident, he could end up in a wheelchair for good. Hmm. So, this neck surgery was to repair the damage as much as they could to remove that danger. He has mentioned that he still has pain from it, but is out of the danger of the uh, paralyzation.
1: Yeah, I was wondering about that because he's one of the few people that does commentary that's not a former wrestler. Right. So, it's not like, you know, oh, Dusty Rhodes has an injury from this or that. It's like, I was wondering what happened to Shivani, why he'd have a neck injury like that.
0: Yeah, apparently they happened actually like in the 80s, and he just eventually started having pains in his neck when he moved his arm in certain ways, and that's what led him to get checked out. Mm. But it was still a while before he actually went to a surgeon, and by that point it had degraded quite a great deal.
1: I'm glad he got to take care of
0: Yes, absolutely. I I believe actually Bobby Heenan also mentions it on a later show. I think it's the one where Brian Pillman grabs Heenan from behind, Mm. and he understandably freaks out due to his own long-standing neck problems. Yes. I just recall him mentioning on that show that both he and Tony have had neck injuries and have to be really careful. Mm -hmm. That's in 96, I think. Speaking of Bobby Heenan, he has a very nice dark purple suit on tonight. Looked really neat. Gene covers the addition of Meng versus Road Warrior Hawk as we get footage of Hawk beating up Meng's manager, Colonel Robert Parker. Eric runs down some of the other matches, and Gene comments that Heenan's being very quiet. I like it that way, Eric notes. (laughs) (laughs) Heenan gives him a good side look at that one, and Eric chuckles to himself. Heenan says Hogan's been trying to find a replacement to take his spot against Vader and Ric Flair, and that Arn Anderson is going to keep an eye on the Renegade. Oh, crap. Renegade's here, and he ain't Lorenzo Lamas.
1: I was just going to say, my (laughs) one hope...
0: I remember so little about that show, except that Lamas had a sweet motorcycle and terrific hair.
1: Yes. Sadly, we wouldn't get Lamas involved in wrestling until Lucha Underground,
0: where you play a random character who then get murdered off screen. That's, that's true. I forgot all about that. Good gosh. Yeah. By the way, um, do you know how many seasons Renegade got? I'm probably say more than four. Five. Okay, there we go. Yeah, yep. Five seasons, and literally all I remember is motorcycle and hair. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the theme song. The theme song was mm-hmm. pretty good, as I recall. There's an episode of American Dad where they paraded Renegade pretty well, but that's that's about all I remember, yeah. (laughs) We'll talk more about WCW's version of Renegade when we get to the main event. Yeah. Eric throws to a video package, combination promo, building up Harlem Heat versus the Nasty Boys. We get clips of the Heat beating people up, interspersed with a more traditional promo while the footage runs in the background. (laughs)
4: the suckers and nasty boys and they want a shot at this good old glorious goal some men my brother earned the hard way nasty boys if you want them come on get them because we took you before and we gon' gonna take you again
2: <laughs> you don't
4: get the last whooping of your life and also the best. And guess what? The Hall of Hangover is going to be hanging in the wings, getting ready to drop some heat on somebody. Guess who? Yes, the best.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh interesting idea here. I don't think it quite works, but it's good to see WCW trying something different with its promos anyway. Mm-hmm. I think they just don't quite have the audio balance right on it, uh, honestly. So it's really hard to hear the heat when they get quiet, particularly Stevie. Mm. He has this super deep voice that just blends in with the bass line.
1: (laughs) No, yeah, I could definitely see that, yeah.
0: Credit for trying, though. It feels like with some more time, this style could become like the neat sort of interview slash build-up videos that the WWE likes to do for its world title feuds. It's like that one where Brock Lesnar talks about the blood and sweat and... And vomit. Yeah. <laughs> In the most bemused and non-threatening way that you possibly could. <laughs> yes. Uh, maybe not the best example.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a new idea. It's interesting to have the audio running the whole time for
0: it. Mm-hmm. I, I do like their themes. At least that is a plus. It's one of the better, like legitimately better wrestling themes. Yeah. Like not ironically good, actually good.
1: Right. I mean, it's no Man Called Sting, but you know, yeah, <laughs>
0: it's a hard level to reach. <laughs> Our first match is the Nasty Boys, Jerry Sags and Brian Nobbs versus Harlem Heat, Booker T and Stevie Ray with Sister Sherry for the Harlem Heat's WCW World Tag Team Championship. The referee for this one is Jimmy Jett.
1: Back in December, Harlem Heat won the titles. I think it was round Starcade, but it was one weird situations where there's not a title match on the show because sometimes titles aren't important. Ever since then, there's been a back and forth feud with Nasty Boys, and as they note, they've beaten them many times at this point. Obviously, they're cheating because of the bad guys. On the previous show, they had a very memorable brawl where they fight in the concession stand and slip around and get covered and catch up. To be an interesting, match to cover in the future. Sounds like actually potentially
0: one of the more fun matches with the Nasty Boys
1: for sure. It definitely seems like that's the kind of match you want them in. Yes, and not a thirty minute match with Sting and Hawk. <laughs> One of the weird things that they're doing this time is that they have these big matches and they just weren't title matches. Because mm-hmm. so the previous show they did the same thing with Vader and Hogan. They have a match and it's just somehow not for the title. And it's never explained why. But yeah, so this time, coming off of a, a win but not win the titles, the Nasty Boys had to agree to this being their last shot of the titles. Ah, oh, okay.
0: The Nasty Boys theme hits. I still can't believe they're the guys who sing their own theme.
1: Yeah, it's no, uh, it's no Sexy Boy.
0: No. <laughs> Eric brings up questions of whether the nasty boys will be able to wrestle, and indeed, only Jerry Sags emerges with Knobs too hurt. Heenan starts a odd joke about Knobs getting a courtesy transplant in the back, but just kind of leaves off. I kind of wonder where that was going.
1: <laughs> I'm not sure on that one.
0: He just drops off in, like in the middle of a sentence, and was like, "Oh," uh, and then stops. <laughs> Harlem Heat's red outfits are pretty cool. Eric and Heenan discuss Nobb's absence, and Heenan sends someone to the back to find out where Nobbs is hiding and implies that Nobbs got scared and ran away. <laughs> nasty champ by the crowd. For shame, Saint Petersburg.
1: Yeah,
0: I knew you. The world's smallest security guard takes the Heat's entrance gear for them. <laughs> Sherry calls the nasty boys dough boys as she makes crazy eyes. Booker gives us an amazing, wild spinning cell of a Sags clothesline like he's in a kung fu film. (laughs) Sags dominates and even hits a double DDT on both heat when Stevie comes in. Sherry complains, so Sags actually decks her. Eric seems taken aback by that and says that was uncalled for. Sags pump handle slammed Booker for two, but an eye poke turns the tide. Booker and Stevie start wearing Sags down with a back reverse sidekick both Eric, and other strikes, but Sags fights back with strikes to, as Eric puts it, the midsection, and I use that term very carefully. <laughs> it was not the midsection. <laughs> no, not, it's a little little lower, yeah. Yes. Sags gets one off one of the worst top rope elbow drops I have ever seen. <laughs> he clearly lands on his feet first, then falls forward. yeah. Booker breaks that up, and Sherry pulls Sags away on a second attempt, so Sags chases her, but gets led into a heat ambush. Booker and Stevie land blows, then Stevie distracts Jet so Sherry can land a few slaps. Booker is greatly amused by that. Really cool corkscrew forearm by Booker, and he puts on a neck hold as Sherry yells, Break it! (laughs) Sherry challenges the crowd to fight her. Sags dodges an elbow but Booker spin-a-roonies and hits a beautiful jump-wheel kick for Eric. The Heat trade-off destroying Sags, including a nice Stevie drop kick and Booker's Harlem hangover flipping leg drop for two and three quarters. Eric wishes Tony Schiavone well in his neck surgery. Heenan jokes that Booker ought to do the Harlem hangover to Tony. <laughs> Stevie hits a crappy bottom rope leg drop, kind of the same problem as Sags' elbow drop. He lands first and then drops. Mm-hmm. Also, when is the last time that you saw someone do a jumping move off the bottom rope?
1: I can't think of any examples.
0: <laughs> it's, it's really weird. Sags finally counters an attempted Booker back body drop with a pile driver. Rather nice one, actually. Brian Nobbs charges down to the ring. Oddly, his ribs are taped up over his shirt, which just can't be proper medical treatment. He's just trying to look. It's not <laughs> it was, to was so weird, right? Yeah, no, it's it's...
1: Yeah, I don't get why you, would, why you wouldn't why even pretend to have your rib taped up, yeah.
0: I think the idea is it's supposed to be, like, legit in storyline. Mm-hmm. But I'm guessing, I don't know, maybe he just didn't want to go shirtless, but wanted to have the rib tape show? I mean, I could see wrapping it where it's supposed to be
1: for the legit look of it, and then, you know, have him get knocked down to the match and have a problem he'd, like, pull exactly. the air- area up and see it, and see it Yeah.
0: Exactly, yeah. It's so strange that he just has it taped over the shirt.
1: Or if he had like a button up version of the, their weird uh, graffiti top. So you gotta like, have it buttoned at the top and not the bottom or something. Right, yeah. Basically, they want him out of the terrible outfit.
0: <laughs> yes. Sags makes the tag, and Nobbs destroys the heat with clothesline, slams, back elbows, and a DDT. Booker bumps on his knee. <laughs> Nobbs dumps Stevie over the top, and Sherry tries a cross body, but he catches her and dangerously hurls her out onto Stevie. Could have broken her neck there. Nobbs nearly drops Booker trying to lift him on his shoulder and hits a kind of Oklahoma stampede, and Sags hits a better elbow drop than before for the three count and the win. The Nasty Boys celebrate with their new belts, but Heenan asks whether they're going to be able to defend it in the future if Nobbs is injured. (laughs) We get a shot of the Blue Bloods up on the entrance ramp, giving expressions of disdain. The Bloods walk down towards the ring, and the Nasty Boys challenge them to come on, but the Bloods turn and walk off. They're in suits, after all. Wouldn't do to ruin them.
1: Yeah. Although, it would be the best time to attack them, I think, given that one of them's injured.
0: Yes, that that is very true. (laughs) The replay shows just how unsafe that throw over the top rope was. Stevie just manages to lift Sherry enough that she doesn't go down on her head. Heenan claims all Sherry was trying to do when she climbed up top was get a better view of the match.
1: <laughs> I mean, you can't disprove that.
0: He- Heenan is pretty gold on this show with excuses for heelish behavior.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, thoughts on the match? I mean, right the bat is obviously not the result I was hoping for. It's, even though I don't love Stevie Ray, I definitely like Booker enough to like Harlem Heat. As a team. And they definitely have good chemistry together. Yes. Obviously, I'm not as big a fan of the Nasty Voice. It's to be pretty apparent <laughs> by now. Yes. That said, I mean, obviously the crowd likes the result.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: For, some, for some reason, our our town seemed to like them. I don't quite understand that. Take it a little personally, to be honest with you. <laughs> True. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The thing was weird is that Sags is booked like superhuman working by himself against two of them. Like, he could beat them easily, you know, Mara's two of them against one, up until they have to cheat and then control the match. And then once Nob gets in, it's the exact same thing again. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make Harlem Heat look very strong.
0: Yeah. Now, I do have to say, once they hit the point, I think it's like an eye poke or something, Mm -hmm. and and the Heat takes over, they just solidly take over. Yes. There's like not a lot left from Sags at that point. So I think you can sell it, and the announcers kind of do, that Sags is putting everything he's got on the table mm-hmm. in the opening and fighting as hard as he can because he knows that he has to take them down fast if he's going to, and that once he runs out of gas or, or loses that initial momentum, then things go more as you would expect.
1: No, no I, I can see that. I don't think the match like ruins Harlem obviously, but it feels overly in favor of Nasty Boy's.
0: Yeah, no, I don't disagree on that. I just, I can see kind of what they were going for in storyline. I think they maybe tilted a little bit too much to make it fully work, but I, I feel like that's what they were going for mm-hmm. anyway.
2: Yeah.
1: So not counting that. As far as overall match structure, it is a solid one.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's nice to see Booker doing all his moves really well. Even Steve Ray, as you noted, has a couple of good moments, that leg drop not counting, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, the dropkick surprised me. Yeah, yeah. that That was quite good. I feel like I've seen him do Dropping before, but it's definitely not a common thing, yeah. But overall, it's definitely what the crowd wanted, and it's, it worked for the storyline, because there's no way they're going to have the Nasty Boys not fine with the tag titles. So it's kind of running yourself in a horror situation, which is your last shot. Well, of course they're going to win their last shot. Yeah. Unless you're going to break the team up, that's what happens.
0: And, and to be fair to them as well, it, I think it's actually intriguing, as Heenan points out, okay, they won the titles, but can they actually defend them? Yeah. Or is sure. or as Knobs too hurt.
1: Yeah. I think this is a case of this interesting story idea. So over as booking the match like stories it works well. I just don't think the way it plays out is as good as they hoped. Yeah. That's what I'd say.
0: I think my characterization of the match would be surprisingly not awful.
2: Yeah, <laughs> there
1: you go.
0: I had really, really bad memories of this matchup from our Starcade run, but mm-hmm. this was a much better version. A botch or two aside, Sags and the Heat did a good job keeping things moving for most of the match, and we got a mix of Booker's great agility and kicks, some decent teamwork by the Heat, and a few hope spots for Sags that all helped keep things interesting. I was ready to hate this match, but I found it all right and a perfectly decent opener until Knobs came out. Mm-hmm. The last few moments of the match feel super botchy and super dangerous, Yeah, particularly that throw of Sherry. Overall, this works as an opener, but it definitely could have had more polish.
1: Yeah. I think the general consensus of Nasty Boys is that Sags
0: is the stronger worker of the two. Generally, I've heard that, yeah. So at
1: least they picked the right person to work most of the match. Yes. I'll give them that, yeah.
0: We get a smash cut as Heenan just finishes saying something to Eric, and suddenly Eric's just standing by the Nasty Boys for an interview. <laughs> <laughs> nice classes, though, Eric.
4: We said we were going to do it. Hock and Doc with styles. We did it. Tell them, nobs. Nasty style. Let me tell you something. Eric Bischoff and all these fine fans of St. Petersburg and these boys said they were going to free you. And what we say, we do. Because we ain't scared of anybody. But Blue Blood, you want to be number one contenders, you got it, you two punts. the Nasty Boys... What you DO, idiots in the squared circle. Uh, it's time to find out what color bloods really run into those brains, blue bloods. Nasty sensations gonna run wild. All
3: right, Brian, I'm not gonna ask you about the injury. Nobody expected you to come out. What is the injury? How bad is it? Let me tell you something, Eric Bischoff.
4: The nasty boys, take a licking. And keep on ticking, baby! Any final comments from the new World Tag Team Champions? They're ours now! Anybody, anytime, bring it on! Because it's Nasty Bill for the lot of ya! Nasty sensation!
0: <laughs> Holy crap, how many times can you say nasty in one interview? <laughs> Other than that, this was fine. I like that it immediately set up the Blue Bloods as the next challengers. That's a good way to immediately look like fighting champions, just right away declaring who you want to face.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm not sure they actually get to pick, mind, but maybe that's champions right?
2: <laughs>
0: I don't think they do, yeah. I did actually also like the uh, line about finding out what color the Blue Bloods' blood actually is. Yeah. That was kind of a good line.
1: I mean, obviously it's metaphorical, but yes.
0: Yes, Yeah. <laughs>
1: I don't pretend the nasty boys know what metaphorical means. (laughs) Yeah, what's my favorite? Uh, Obviously, they have good intensity. And I mean, it's no respect to the person I'm reverenting, but certain parts that gives me a real, like, um, angry Roddy Piper promo. Mm -hmm. Obviously, proper promos in general are better, but I was getting that vibe, I think, more from, probably more from Sags, I think. Just the sort of intensity in the voice. But otherwise, yeah, it's not great.
0: I think they get a good... Like story content across with it again mm-hmm. much like the match they they do fine from the story content but they could definitely have used a few more uh revisions to avoid repetition
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> there's also an issue you have with doing promos right after a matchup for because like some some of them when they have good conditioning it's not an issue they're not, not blowing up but other wrestlers are obviously not
0: yes true
1: but i guess in a way it arguably kind of works with them that they're just fighting they're immediately out there yelling about their next fight their next challenger.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it just some wrestlers, like I said, with their they don't work an hour long match and they have good conditioning, they can go their promo like they like they just walked out to a promo versus just working a twenty minute match.
0: Yeah. Or I mean they can make the exhaustion work for them in the promo, like uh some of the Ric Flair ones mm-hmm. in uh the Starcade run. You know, he was clearly tired and everything, but he actually made that part of the promo.
1: Oh yeah, I like that's the very first one I think from. A- yes, May three. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I got to ask your opinion too. Mm. Glasses, Eric.
1: It's a decent look. Yeah, feels a little bit forced. Um, he's trying. He's trying to look like serious journalist, like uh, going for like a Clark, <laughs> like a Clark Kent kind of thing.
0: Kind of does look like that actually. Now that I think of it, with it the- with the hair.
1: Yeah, it was totally natural jet black hair. Yeah. <laughs> so, in classic WW taping infusion. Harlem Heat would actually win the titles back before they lost them. So, let's try and dig with the timeline here. It gets a little complicated. They taped a match for WWE Worldwide on May 3rd. Okay. Which had the Harlem Heat regain the tag titles from the Nasty Boys.
0: So, note the date of this show, which is May 21st. May 21st, yeah. So, yes. So, the Harlem Heat had already regained the titles from the Nasty Boys... Before they lost the titles to the Nasty Boys.
1: Correct. They went in as champions to regain their own titles. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> what the heck? Yeah.
0: Oh my gosh, that had to be so weird.
1: <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of that in this period. Uh, sometimes it's just really, really, really bad like this. But yeah, so the match was taped on May 3rd. However, the actual match didn't air on WCW Worldwide until June 24th.
0: Okay, they were taping quite a ways ahead then. Apparently so.
1: Further confusing things, Harlem Heat would lose the titles again Okay. in a, in a match that was taped on June 21st. Huh. Yes. So on, so on May 3rd, Wild Champions, they win the titles back before they lost them. So then three days before they actually run the one where they win the titles back, they've lost them again.
0: Wow! Yes, that's amazing. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so the, the episode where they lose the titles again uh, didn't actually air until July twenty second.
0: Okay, fascinating.
1: Yes, imagine the the chronological order here. With how long? How long is Nasty Boy's title reign officially? Are you counting up from this show to when the episode airs, or is it a negative eighteen day? Yeah, title reign.
0: I mean, I, we, we are judging based on wrestling's fictional reality, so I think you do have to ultimately go with the actual air dates, mm-hmm. but wow, that's that's still amazing.
1: Yes. I love that there's two title changes and they're both out of order. Like yes. That. It's amazing.
0: So is there anything that comes with the Blue Bloods bit?
1: Um, yes. At Great American Bash, you have the Nasty Boys defending their titles, quote unquote, defending their titles. Um, against the Blue Buds. Okay. And that show airs June 18th. All right. So technically, they're defending them six days before they lose them. Although, again, it's over a month after they've lost them.
0: Yes. (laughs) Wow, that is like brain-breaking. Yes. Just to think about that. Mm -hmm. That's like time travel movie stuff.
1: Yes. Oh, and just to add to the, the complications there, Harlem Heat is wrestling Dick Slater and Buckhouse Buck at that same show on June 18th. They're the team that they lose the titles to the next next time.
0: Okay. (laughs) Bischoff throws to Mean Gene Okerlund, who is with Kevin Sullivan. Gene tries to ask Kevin a question, but Kevin wanders around aimlessly, seeming unfocused.
5: Kevin Sullivan, my friend, come on in. Tonight you're going to be facing the man with no friends, no name, not too much. Just a second, Kevin, please. Kevin, this man has not been normal. Normal, perhaps a bad choice of words. Whenever I talk about Kevin Sullivan, you're going to be facing the man formerly known as Butcher. That sounds like Prince for some reason. <laughs> I'm not afraid what, what, of butch- what What is it with you? Gene, do you feel cold in here? You are disoriented. I don't feel cold. No, it's warm. It's 85 degrees. Who are you kidding?
3: You know, Butcher, or the man with no
4: name, I told you not to show up here because it wasn't what I feared that was going to happen to you. It's what I feared that's going to happen to me. I haven't slept in the last five days. Butcher, I'm going to take everything. Are you sure you're not cold?
5: You know, this uh, may be the old story of what goes around comes around because, Kevin Sullivan, you've ruined a lot of people's lives as of late. I don't have to tell these fans. I certainly don't have to tell you. Look what you did to this man. You've, you've he's, he's now totally useless. The
4: whole problem was with the butcher or the man with no name is that he still believes in Hulkamania! This Hulkamania that you really believe all you have to do is say your prayers, take your vitamins and believe in yourself and things will be
5: right? Well butcher, man with no name, it ain't gonna happen!
4: And Gene, there's something wrong with you if you don't think it's not cold in here.
5: Well it's not cold gentlemen, it's not cold in here is it? It's, 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 It's warm! It's even maybe 90 in here. I get it, You're go. going the wrong way. That's the men's room. Please, <laughs> that way. Head to the ring. Kevin Sullivan, let's get back to more action at Slambury.
0: Got a bit of foreshadowing of Hogan's It's Not Hot slip up there. As Sullivan <laughs> claims it's cold, but then tells Gene something's wrong if Gene doesn't think it's not cold. <laughs> well,
1: that's, that's what Druids
0: are. You know, they, they have their own language. <laughs> this was actually kind of neat, though. Sullivan does a good job of acting completely out of it, like he's trying to focus but constantly distracted. Gene plays off it pretty well, too. It feels like an experienced interviewer trying to recover things when his subject turned out to be having a mental breakdown mid-show, which I think is exactly what they were going for. Seems like it, yeah. A pretty fun concept for this one and performed pretty well. I think the only comment I would make is it's, it's very awkward to hear them continually refer to Ed Leslie as the Butcher. And the man with no name at the same time? Yes. If you're calling him Butcher, he has a name. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's quite strange from that aspect, but the overall concept of the promo was was pretty fun. I almost wonder, to your point, if they
1: gave Oakland notice that he was going to be acting like that. Because I could see them doing that. Like, just tell him come someone to come, come up for an interview, and just don't tell him he's going to do
0: the thing where he says it's cold or not cold. That, that could be. Okerlum would be experienced enough to handle that very well. So I could see them thinking, let's try and get a more legit feel by actually not telling me he's going to do it. Right. It's definitely an interesting promo in any case. And it really gets across, I think, what Sullivan was trying to do with his character at this moment.
1: Mm-hmm. It's definitely a weird idea, but they're kind of it work as much as it's going to work, yeah.
0: Yeah. We're just going to have the wrestler do something completely out there and just let the interviewer kind of try to manage things still.
1: Very strange, but interesting, yeah.
0: Our second match is The Man With No Name, or The Butcher, or Ed Leslie, versus Kevin Sullivan in a special grudge match. The referee for this one is Randy Anderson.
1: Right, so I'm not sure what's so special about their grudge, but I'll try to tell you the story at least. <laughs> so after approximately 7,000 losses to Hogan, Ed Leslie will get attacked and beaten up by his former teammate Sullivan. This would apparently give him amnesia. Something that always works out well in wrestling. <laughs> he's I guess a good guy? Because he was a bad guy and then got beaten up by another bad guy. It's the what is the assassin number one? Become a good
0: guy because his manager didn't cheat properly and he kept yeah. losing matches. <laughs> that kind of logic. It's maybe a little better, but I guess you can argue that amnesia wiped his slate clean, so he's back to when he was a good guy.
1: Yeah, I guess so.
0: Yeah, hit hit his control alt delete.
1: Yeah, I guess so. Well, I know that sadly this is, Ed Leslie is the man with
0: no name and not Clint Eastwood. Yes. To be
1: a more interesting fight. That would be.
0: Yes. It would also probably be over very quickly because, you know, he'd just shoot him.
1: Right, right. Well, yeah.
0: I'm not going to lie. The first time we watched this, I spent most of the match trying to figure out what the heck was on the man with no name's tights. Mm Mm-hmm. It's got these gray tights that are oddly textured more like pajama pants than normal wrestling tights, and they've got some kind of design that looks like a weird mishmash of heads all growing out of some spiky thing. It's very strange. Mm -hmm. Sullivan's entrance music is sirens and a thumping guitar. He's billed as Seeking Sanctuary in the Conk Republic. I, I might be wrong, but if you're seeking sanctuary in a place, wouldn't that mean that you're, you know, in that place? Yeah.
1: Maybe the misspoken, I mean, he's, he's seeking sanctuary from the Conquer Republic, <laughs> and that's why he's here.
0: The Conquer Republic, by the way, is a micro-nation located in Key West, which, quote-unquote, seceded from the United States in response to some border patrol roadblocks, which were severely impacting Key West tourism in 1982. It's been maintained as a tourist destination for the Key West area ever since. Oddly enough, later in 1995, the U.S. Army Reserve would use it for a training exercise, simulating the invasion of a foreign island, only apparently nobody told the people running the republic.
1: <laughs> oh, jeez.
0: So they attacked the Coast Guard with water balloons and bread. <laughs> wow. The Army Reserve, quote-unquote, surrendered. It's all a bit of a weird combination protest-slash-gag by the folks near Key West, and it's been used to protest everything from Border Patrol actions to government shutdowns. Just one of the many things you never think you're going to write about while hosting a wrestling podcast. Yes. (laughs) It's all no-name to start, as he beats up Sullivan in and around the ring with punches, chops, a high knee, chokes, an eye gouge, running him into objects, and finally his sleeper hold... Which is, frankly, more moves than I thought he knew.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Sullivan kind of hits a jawbreaker to escape, but he's quite short, so No Name's jaw really doesn't make any kind of contact, but he's stunned anyway. <laughs> he's just surprised by someone
1: falling down like that, yeah.
0: The camera oddly focuses right on Sullivan's butt. Bad luck with camera angles for Sullivan matches.
1: I was just thinking that other match had the same problem. Yeah,
0: Starcade 94. That's it, yeah. Are they angle right up there. Yeah. Yes. He falls on the poor guy. Yeah. Sullivan dumps No Name outside, and they brawl outside and inside, but No Name still gets the best of it, no-selling Sullivan's chops with bug-eyes. No Name earns two off a jumping chop and a pile-driver. Sullivan gets an eye-poke and rams No Name into turnbuckles and post, but No Name hits a stunningly crap clothesline. <laughs> Sullivan dodges a corner splash, and No Name eats turnbuckle, and rather cheesily, the ring post. Looks completely nonsensical how he manages to run himself into that. Oh yeah. Sullivan hangs him by his feet in the corner, called the Tree of Woe, and hits a running knee strike to the gut, and a double stomp for the three count and the win. Heenan sounds absolutely stunned that Sullivan got No Name, as Eric notes that No Name controlled for most of the match. As they go to discuss further, though, a mighty voice interrupts. Oh, yeah. But more on that after we discuss the match proper. <laughs> Thoughts on this one, Al?
1: It's a pretty nothing match, but it is inoffensive. Mm-hmm. There's no botches. No one's nearly got their neck broken, really. One thing I really stand out to me is that the crowd has like no interest in this match, unless I misheard it.
0: I see very little response in anything in the match at all. I feel like No Name gets some cheers, but it's not like... Yeah, there's there's no big spots for them to really highlight.
1: Right. There's no, like, back-and-forth, like, you know, crowd response, you know, boo when, you know, Sullivan takes over and, like, cheers when he comes back, yeah. there
0: There is uh, one point where one guy, like, literally one guy in the crowd really loudly cheers for Sullivan. Huh. <laughs> I don't know, maybe he's related.
1: <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's the uh, Super Dragon guy, infamous for <laughs> media. Yes. He picks picks one guy he likes, and he's got to stick with it. <laughs> There was one bit in the match not quite highlighted properly enough, where Leslie is coming towards Sullivan, and he's pantomiming he's gonna like do an axe handle strike to him, and he's in the corner, and he does it so slowly and so obviously, waiting to be interrupted. I think it's the where he eye pokes him. Might be, yeah. He walks like really slowly with his hands up. It's like when you watch Frank Ol oh, Frankenstein movie. He has the arms <laughs> out. He's waiting to be hit. Anything coming, anything is going to interrupt what he's doing. (laughs) It's, it looks so fake. The thing for me is that, and I'm obviously not a big fan of Ed Leslie, but yeah, the booking really is weird with him because he does control so much of the match. Yeah. And he gets into driver which Sullivan kicks out of, but then two fairly standard moves take him out.
0: Like with ease. I'm guessing the Tree of Woe may have actually just legit been Sullivan's finisher at the time. I don't know.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: I know he's done that stomp thing before. I've seen another match. Yeah. Yet, but yeah. It doesn't it doesn't feel like, in the context of this match, like I feel like, oh, here's a big blow where he got in one.
0: It does feel very strange. Yeah. 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 I, w- I would say this wasn't good, but it wasn't near as bad as I feared. Mm-hmm. I guess the Butcher just has about five minutes worth of moves. So he could work with this, but not with the 12 minutes they gave him at Starcade 1994.
1: I still maintain that feels like so much longer than it.
0: It days. does. Yeah. I, I remember us all being shocked when we looked at the time.
1: I keep thinking it was like 25 minutes.
0: Yeah. (laughs) It was really weird, I agree, how little Sullivan offense there was in this match. It does fit the storyline they're going for with Sullivan just being really unfocused, but it ends up a kind of awkward match. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it was repetitive and mostly very basic brawling with an underwhelming ending. But it's only five minutes long, so it didn't bother me. Mm -hmm. And what follows is about to make up for any flaws that it has. I was
1: thinking about the man with the name's tights. I'm wondering if the idea this was going for is that, because he, he apparently has no memory, but yet knows to come up for matches, and remembers remembers Kevin Sullivan, altered the holes in the, the amnesia aspect of the story, admittedly. <laughs> maybe the idea is that he's not wearing like his newer gear, like he'd gotten because he doesn't remember wearing his butcher. So he like, pulled some old thing from the closet he wore in like the mid-80s, it's sun-faded and, you know, doesn't look
0: great, but he's wearing it's all I could think to have. Maybe. I, I suspect that you're putting far too much uh, thought into this angle. But... I really am.
1: <laughs> yes. Otherwise, they're just ugly tights.
0: Yes, they are. A gruff voice bellows from the heavens, and we see a cavern where a mysterious man in a robe, covered in spiderwebs, screams at the camera. As the man speaks, Sullivan escapes the ring and runs through the crowd for the exit. Really
4: had control of this contest for about 70
3: or 80% of the time. Oh, wait
4: a minute. Look at that. Who is that? Oh, my
2: goodness.
4: From the bowels of New York City. To the shanty rows in Paris, to the slums of Singapore, Hulk the Maniacs, all wearing the red and the yellow, the army of the immoral, Hulk Hogan, what? Sullivan has gone into the people. He's getting out of here.
3: Maybe we should get out of here, too. I don't know, but what in the... Who is that? What is
5: that? And where is Sullivan going?
0: Neither of us had any idea that this show was the start of the Dungeon of Doom angle. No. This is absolute gold, in that it is absolutely awful, but so endearingly so that you can't help but love it. It's
1: like a a children's drawing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: It makes very little sense. In fact, it makes no sense. The future leader of the Dungeon of Doom just screams nonsensically at the camera, but man, he's giving it his best effort. (laughs) Sullivan's odd reaction does nicely build some mystery, I'll give it credit for that. This will go on to be one of the best worst angles in wrestling history, full of odd characters and really strange moments, so it's honestly great to see where it all began.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's just bonkers, this whole thing, I mean... (laughs) I mean, yeah, Sullivan is... Garrett and this guy appears in the video screen somehow well, I guess it's because of his magic powers and he's in a cave somewhere maybe in the Conquer Public, who knows
0: it looks like a set from a knockoff of a Star Trek mm. yeah right like if you were doing the 60s Star Trek but not as well
1: right is that or if um, it's so like if you're doing like a serious horror movie like a gothic kind of thing you have you know, really fancy looking walls you know hopefully it's a real cast look you want it to look authentic and sort of creepy right but then, when you're doing, if you're doing like a a comedy show and you're doing like a sketch where it's the old creepy castle, or and it's clearly like painted and it's like, or it's like a wallpaper looks like bricks. Yeah, yeah, I can that's see what this that. is, is, is basically. Yeah, <laughs> it can't possibly be meant to be taken seriously. Yes, but it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> In the weeks to come, Sullivan would change his tune and begin to seek out this strange yelling, bellowing man. In a weird castle somewhere. And thus he would become the Taskmaster and begin to lead the crazy Dungeon of Doom story, which we'll definitely cover more in the future. Oh my gosh, yes. As for Leslie, he thankfully just vanished again before his next gimmick change to come. <laughs> it's kind of sad that his story arc is coming in, betraying his best friend, trying to win the title, failing to win the title, and basically failing to win every match against his friend. So betrayed him for no purpose and no reward for it, except then being beaten up by the guy who hired him to beat up his friend, losing his memory, and then losing the, his match against him.
0: Well, you know, the wages of sin is amnesia and oblivion, I guess.
1: I guess so. <laughs> so it's crime-doesn't-pay stories, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> we next go to Mean Gene, who is with WCW World Heavyweight Champion Jimmy Hart. And a few moments later, Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage. Hogan's actually the champ, but just I guess the big gold belt is too heavy for him to carry, right? So he left it to Jimmy.
5: <laughs> well, I must say this has been a night of surprises here at Slam thus far. Eric Bischoff and Bobby the Brain Heat and Jimmy Hart standing by. We're going to be joined momentarily by the Macho Man Randy Savage and the WCW Heavyweight Champion Ooh, of the World. He's here, baby. He's His here. folks are here. Randy's oh, no. mom and dad are here. Oh, Everybody is here, oh. and a main event is right around the corner. Holster.
4: Well, you know something, Mean Gene, we were a little late showing up tonight, brother, because the macho man was dog paddling from Clearwater Beach, his daddy, Angelo Poffo, was doing the backstroke, brother, and I wish we had got Flair and Vader in that no-good enforcer outside the building, in the parking lot, before this thing started. When we pulled up, bro, they were popping off. But the thing they don't realize, they better hide in those dress rooms. Better wait for the last minute. There are so many macho monster maniacs out there, brother. That between Randy, and myself, the greatest manager in the world, Jimmy Hart, and dangerous Angelo Poffo, there's no way, brother, they're gonna get out of this building. Ooh yeah! Ooh yeah! I must swim over here. I saw sharks, man-of-war's, there was red tides and submarines, but they were all friendly compared to Flair, Vader, and the Enforcer. But let me tell you what's going down right now. This is the bottom line. These are the Monster Maniacs, and we will not be denied Tonight, Slambery, is our night. Legends reunion. Angelo Popo, the dangerous one, being inducted into the WCW Hall of Fame. Nothing's raining on our
5: parade. No way! All right, Hulkster, you take a look at Flair and Vader. You actually asked them to come on out in the parking lot, and all of a sudden, they begged off.
4: Well, you know, they're an awesome twosome, brother. And when you put the Enforcer in the corner,
5: it's like double
4: jeopardy all over again. But the thing is, with the momentum of Hulkamania, with the new vein that's blowing out the back of my tricep, brother, the new hoses running up and down the pythons, brother, I felt like a 747 coming in for a crash landing to my hometown and the fact that when you stack momentum on top of momentum with Macho Man's dad, Dangerous Angelo, out there, teaching us every trick in the book, brother. These guys don't realize the power of the Monster Maniacs. These guys don't realize how crazy that renegade is if we could find him. And they have no idea how many Slim Jims the Macho Man has already snapped into. Let me smell that Slim Jim breath, brother. Whoa! Whoa! Whoa. It's to come before the storm. There's some bad weather brewing in the air, and we will not be denied. Well, you know, the way I look at things, Mean Gene, all around the Bay Area, we got this stinky red tide going. So everybody around the country is watching, and I can't think of a better place to deposit them than out in the Gulf of Mexico, brother. What you gonna do with the Macho Man Jimmy Hart and Hulk Hogan run wild on you?
5: Ooh, yeah! Thank you, gentlemen. Let's get back to more of Slammery
4: 95.
5: I'm ecstatic
4: for getting into the Hall of Fame and especially... Watching my son, Randy
0: Macho Man Savage, wrestle tonight.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We interrupted Insanity to bring you a polite old man in the back.
0: Yes, yes, yes. This was utterly hilarious and completely over the top. Hogan and Macho play off each other exceptionally well here, egging each other on to bigger, bolder, and more ridiculous statements, and are clearly just having a great time and basically saying anything that springs to their mind.
1: It's real free association kind of stuff, yeah.
0: In one promo, they somehow managed to bring up Sharks, Red Tide, Angelo Papo's Hall of Fame induction, Exploding Veins, Crashing Planes, and Slim Jims. Yeah. It's pretty much lunacy, but it's so much fun. hmm
1: Yeah, it's funny. There's this whole mindset people have, I think. That we kind of I think people forget this middle period, in Hogan, because people remember his just gloriously insane promos, like where he talks about slamming Andre and cracking him in the continental rift and everything. Yes remember that, and then they remember, like, the more serious, or at least slightly more grounded NWO promos, where it's still weird, but he's not talking about Fanes and, you know, Red Tide and everything. Yeah. And then people tend to think of there being, like, a hard cutoff point before this, like, like, 1992, 93 is when he stops doing this. But no, he's doing this, like, right up until he becomes Hollywood.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's completely bonkers ones in, like, 1996. Yes. I forget if it's 95 or 96, uh, late 95 or early 96, where he does the one where he talks about that he's going to go up into heaven and beat up Gorgeous George or something.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> so weird. The one night where it opens with him wearing like a fan the opera mask and holding a sword. Uh, yes, there's that too. Yes.
0: <laughs> Some of what they seem here seems almost the opposite of what they mean to say. Like, it can't be a good thing to compare yourself to a crash landing 747, right?
1: Yeah, I would think not. Especially crashing into your own hometown as well. Yeah.
0: But it really doesn't matter what these two are saying. What matters is how enthusiastically they're saying it and how much fun they're having. That's true. The best part is definitely the crazy oversell of Macho's Slim Jim breath. Yes. Just, just nuts.
1: <laughs> you know, that's interesting. I was thinking, because uh, I listened to this again earlier today. I just show my dad this? Because hey, yes. my dad is the guy, as mentioned, my dad is the guy that played Little League with Randy Savage and, and uh, his brother, he is this memory from all the years ago of seeing Angelo papo you know, sitting in the stand at the Lily game, wearing a singlet and like, you know, track pants. Cause you don't forget that obviously. Yeah. It's a very, visual, yeah. very exact memory to have. So I was showing it to him and I'm thinking, so, okay, so we see Ray Savage and we hear about Angelo Poffo. And then we see him in that abrupt jump cut at the end. But they mentioned Savage's mother. We never see her. That's true. I'm, I'm probably a reason for that. is just weird. And we also don't see his brother either.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm sure if I had Lenny Poffel actually come to WCW yet or no I, I have
0: no idea when that happens no yeah okay
1: let me see okay according to Wikipedia he did uh, 1995 when he signed a contract so he was signed after they they hired Randy Okay, they, were, they had bought the gorgeous George gimmick and gave it to him mm. but then WCW just didn't didn't care <laughs> so they Jeez. never actually had it had him there So it's weird if he is contracted there. And especially if they're not going to use him, why they don't have him just have him be there, have him be there with Angelo Popper or something. Yeah, true. Very very curious. They pay him all this money, apparently, for like a six-figure deal they had for two, two, three years with him. And not not even use him for this appearance, he show up as himself.
0: Yeah. So indeed, elsewhere, as you heard, because the transition was so fast that I just actually couldn't cut it, (laughs) Someone crams a camera in Angelo Pavo's face for an exceedingly quick statement about his Hall of Fame induction. He's happy and he's proud watching his son. And we're out.
1: (laughs) That's all we need to hear about that, apparently.
0: The show turns black and white. It's the NWO! (gasps) Oops. No. No. Time for the Legends match. Which, for some reason, WCW decided to do in black and white, despite the fact that Color TV was definitely a thing when the two that they're about to bring out were wrestling.
1: Yeah, it's true.
0: It does look cool, I'll give them that. Mm -hmm. So our third match is Dirty Dick Murdoch versus Chief Wahoo McDaniel in a Legends match. The referee for this one is Jimmy Jett, who may not have been alive yet at the time these two were wrestling. (laughs) Ring announcer Capetta notes that people look forward to the Legends match each time there's a slamboree. I'm still not really clear that we can count that Funk vs. Blanchard match last year since Funk was actively involved in WCW angles, and Blanchard was almost brought back full time the year prior, but I guess WCW decided that it was close enough.
1: I guess so, yeah.
0: Heenan brings in Gordon Soly, who's going to take Eric's place for this match. Soley thanks Heenan for his kind introduction, and Heenan quickly clarifies that it was written for him so as not to look like a nice guy. <laughs> We get a very nice buildup of both men by Heenan as he talks about managing several wrestlers against each and often ending up on the losing side. He also disparages rodeos. (laughs) Naturally. Wahoo levers Murdoch into some early arm drags, while Murdoch goes for shoulder blocks and elbows, but a big chop from Wahoo gets Murdoch wobbling to the ground. Murdoch challenges Wahoo as Soli tells us that Murdoch would mix it up with a buzzsaw and give it the first two rounds. I love (laughs) Soli-isms. That is a very weird expression. It is, it is. Heenan clarifies that Murdoch would also be blindfolded. (laughs) Soli's not quite ready to go that far.
1: No, he has his limits.
0: They trade strikes, and another big chop makes Murdoch back off. Murdoch shoves Wahoo to the corner, and Wahoo locks his leg, but Murdoch protests to distract the refs for strikes, only to be dropped by more chops. Murdoch comes back with a knee strike, stomps, and elbows, and goes up top to drive Wahoo to the mat with a falling knee. It looks clumsy, but devastating. Yeah, see that? We an elbow drop for two by Murdoch, but Wahoo reverses a whip and hits his chop on the rebound, for the three count and the win. Soli says it's been a pleasure to join Heenan, and we get a replay of the turnbuckle rams and the final chop. It looks much better than it did against superstar Billy Graham on Stargate 84. True. <laughs> Thoughts on the match?
1: I mean, I don't know if we needed a Wahoo McDaniel-Dick Murdoch match, honestly. They don't do anything wrong in the match. It's like they mess anything up. And not to be mean, it's kind of like with the Sullivan-LSC um, match. And then goes wrong. But it's just, yeah, I don't know if we need this. I don't know. I, I, I still maintain the best usage of the legends we got was that six-man match in the first one. Agreed. Because that gives them a way to come in, do a couple of things they can still do, get a pop or two from the crowd, and then not stick around too long.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Other than the knee drop, really, it's them sort of hitting each other,
0: and that's it. Pretty much, yeah.
1: There's no, there's not a lot of really, I would say a lot of nuance, there's really not any nuance to this. But they're, they're, they're marketing to a certain crowd that maybe remembers them, seeing them wrestle like the older fans, or, you know, might have. You want to show their kids these people wrestling. I don't know if this is the best example of that, but, you know, it's what you want to do. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just I don't ding much out of it.
0: Yeah, this was an okay brawl, played at about half normal speed. Yeah. It's not very exciting, but I think it fulfilled its purpose and it didn't overstay its welcome. At only six minutes, it's a little over a third the length of the similarly paced Bachwinkle funk match, if less complex as well. Mm-hmm. There were little things about it that I liked, like the fact that Wahoo actually had to get leverage for his arm drags early on, rather than just easily throwing Murdoch around like often happens. I think they did a good job of showing the long rivalry solely in heat and Heenan build up around them as well, putting some emotion in their strikes and face-offs throughout the match. This was what it was. If you enjoyed these guys in their prime, it's a perfectly fine flashback, and that's what it's here to be. Mm-hmm. Agreed. As solely hands off to Eric, he throws to Gene Okerland, who is standing by with a besuited Big Bubba Rogers. Sadly, Bubba has not studied at the Sting School of Business Fashion and has gone with basic black rather than eye searing red. <laughs>
5: Thank you very much, Gordon Zildi. It it looked and sounded like a a number of years ago, and I must say a great treat here at Slamboree, a Legends reunion. With me at this time, a man who's going to be facing the very popular Sting. He is charged up. We remember what happened at Uncensored. I'm talking about Big Bubba Rogers. Without a doubt,
4: Sting is one of the greatest wrestlers in the world today, but I'm one of the very few men on the face of God's green earth that's beat you, Sting. But I know something that the fans don't know. When that referee counted one, two, three, I felt all the faith that you had for yourself and your body disappear. I felt the faith of the people in the stand disappear. Why I even lost faith in Sting myself? Because tonight, boy, I'm going to beat you for the second time, and that will be the end of Sting in World Championship Wrestling. I will run you out of here on a railroad puck, and that's bottom line. Just because I'm big enough, (laughs) just because I'm bad enough, and just because I can. So, Sting, you get ready. Every man, woman, and child that's sitting in their stands and believing Sting, you get ready. Because I'm going to come out there and destroy everything
5: you believe in. I should point out for the record, this is going to be a lights out match. The lights will flash in the arena here at the Bayfront Center. As Sting meets Big Bubba right now, let's go back to Gary and Michael Capetta.
0: Darn good promo from Bubba here. Yeah. He very effectively builds up Sting before building himself up as even better, and he makes this a contest for Sting's very identity and the fans' belief in him. I particularly like the line about Bubba himself losing faith in Sting. It's just a great backhanded way of saying he overestimated Sting before. Mm -hmm. The Sting wasn't even as much of a challenge as he thought. I don't know if this has been an epic feud, but Bubba's promo made it feel pretty epic.
1: He had the same sort of intensity that the At the Nasty Boys promo earlier. Yes. But there's definitely more detail to his and there's more nuance and subtlety to it. Obviously this sums up is pretty uh overt, like feeling the faith in him like leaving his body is, you know, a very very deep thing for a guy in Big Bubba to say.
0: Yeah, very true, yes.
1: <laughs> but yeah, I liked it. It's a c we're still in the relatively in the angry shouty wrestler promo period, but it's a good balance between Just yelling like we got with Nasty Boys, and just saying whatever weird, possibly coke fueled thing you can think of we got in a previous promo.
0: (laughs) Yeah. He's very shouty, like you said, but he's also actually thoughtful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I am, however, very unclear what a Lights Out match is.
1: Yeah. I think everyone is unclear on that. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Our fourth match is The Great Muda versus Paul Orndorff for Muda's IWGP Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this one is Nick Patrick. Muda as champion is a very
1: recent thing. He just won the title at a New Japan show on May 3rd. Uh, the idea here is just that they're doing this cross motional thing Threat 95. Obviously, as we remember seeing from Starcade 95, where most of the roster appears at some, some point on the show. Although, weirdly, not Muda himself. That still baffles me. That was, that was odd, yeah. As far as I can tell, there's not a story specifically with Orndorff and Muda. It's just Muda's here, and they picked Orndorff because he's a seasoned veteran for this. It is notable, um, apparently, this is not the first time Muda's held the title in Japan, but the first time he's held it where he's been transitioned from being the great Muda versus being Kiji Mudo, which is his actual name. Oh, okay. Basically, he'll put on the Muda get-up-and-gear... For matches like that. Like, same way Finn Balor becomes the demon for matches.
0: Right. Awesome Taiko drum entrance for Muda on this one. Mm -hmm. It might have been the inspiration, I would imagine, for Sting's WrestleMania entrance against Triple H at WrestleMania 31. Very possible. Muda comes out in a totally badass ninja-style outfit, black with silver flames and a mask that completely hides his face. Oddly, Eric welcomes us back to the 20th century. Black and white TV shows were in the 20th century, too, Eric. Yeah. And, and what an insult to Wahoo and Murdoch. Just how old do you think they are?
1: <laughs> That's true.
0: <laughs> yeah. Eric talks up a recent show WCW and New Japan put on in North Korea.
2: Yeah. And
0: that would be the Collision in Korea, otherwise known as the Pyongyang... International Sports and Culture Festival for Peace.
1: (laughs) Well, we got peace there, so I guess
0: it worked out. It was a two-night event, headlined by Ric Flair versus Antonio Inoki, with a crowd of about 150,000 on each day. Wrestling Observer writer Dave Meltzer notes, of course, that most of the crowd was likely outright ordered to attend. Yes. So it's not really a fair comparison to normal wrestling show attendance. Mm Mm-hmm. WCW later aired eight of the 15 matches as a pay-per-view, but the show is not available at this time on the WWE Network. I can only imagine why. <laughs> yeah. It is, however, currently available on YouTube, released apparently by Bischoff's 83 Weeks podcast. Oh, there you go. Oddly, despite Eric using him as a segue to talk about that show, Muda did not, in fact, wrestle on it.
1: Yeah, that's true. I've I read about that. Yeah, I don't think he's on that show either. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Orndorff has a very nice black robe with sparkling gold designs and Mr. Wonderful on the back. It looks great. Mm-hmm. Paula chance to start, of course. I still don't get it.
1: I am still baffled by that. I don't know. If I can find the origin of that, I will definitely mention
0: it the show, but yeah. I get to find it. Muda rips his mask off to show black face paint with red patterns. Eric does a very nice coverage of Orndorff's strengths and weaknesses as a competitor, and Heenan warns Orndorff not to let the crowd get to him. Orndorff demands that Patrick make the crowd stop chanting at him. Patrick yells at him and clearly gestures to him to get rid of the wrestling already. <laughs> Muda feints a few kicks, making Orndorff nervous, and out-wrestles Orndorff to put on some arm holds. Orndorff gets distracted by crowd chants, and Muda ducks a clothesline and hits a jump-back sidekick per Eric, so Orndorff rolls out. Eric and Heenan make fun of Steven Seagal. And this was before Seagal devolved into self-parody. Yes, for sure. Orndorff retreats to discourage a Muda dive. Eric notes that Orndorff is resilient, with a chin like the front end of an Edsel. Heenan is very confused. (laughs) Back in, Orndorff rolls over a Muda headlock for two, and works Muda's arm, as the commentators discuss that Muda may be letting himself get dragged into Orndorff's style of match now. Huge Orndorff clothesline, and he does a very cool elbow drop where he switches sides midway through. But Muda dodges. Eric calls a Muda drop kick a jump double kick. Seriously, man.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Muda hits the power drive elbow, impressing the commentators. Muda dominates the mat wrestling, but Orndorff counters a headlock with a monster back suplex, and Eric points out that Orndorff may have let Muda. Get some earlier headlocks to lure him in to letting his guard down. Orndorff hurls Muda through the ropes for some choking with a cable, and Patrick threatens a DQ, suplex back in, and Orndorff works the back and neck. Eric points out it's right where Shivani had his surgery. In fact, he then claims Tony is faking. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Doesn't he? Is this one where he jokes about him uh, being the Graybar Hotel, something like that?
0: Uh, Oh, it's definitely at one point. He he does the faking line a few times, but I can't remember where he does that, yeah. Muda gradually fights back, eventually muscling Orndorff up on his shoulder during a front face lock for an inverted atomic drop. Quite impressive. Mm -hmm. Solid Muda clothesline and a second rope elbow for crazy hang time, but Muda is too worn down and Orndorff is up first. Orndorff fist drop gets one, but Muda back body drops him out of a pile driver and hits another jump back sidekick, his handspring elbow, and a one-handed bulldog for two, then gets Orndorff down for the moonsault, for the three count and the win. Sadly, we don't get a repeat taiko drum performance, just WCW's generic Japanese wrestler music, yeah. as we see clips of the second rope elbow, power drive, and moonsault. It's amazing how fast the power drive elbow looks, even in slow motion. Oh, yeah. It's so good. Thoughts on the match?
1: The thing for me is the match could be really good, because there's an interesting clash of styles, because Orendorf obviously has a very old-school mentality. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he has some, some extra tricks, like he's mentioned the elbow drop, which switches sides. But in general, he definitely wrestles like an early 80s sort of wrestler. He never really changed all that much over the years. I guess figuring he didn't need to, which maybe be a certain, certain level of truth that I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing for me, though, is Mood's offense is so so crisp, so consistent, is a really nice flow to everything. His kicks are really good. His, his power drive elbow he does is really good. So I think the idea they're going for is you get to see him do his flashy stuff early on. You're like, well, this is really good. And then Orndorf takes it away from you. And he makes you wait and makes you wait. And then he finally gets it back he gets, and you get to see it again. I guess that's the story they're going for. The problem for me is it slows down so much in the middle.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: At one point, I think Orndriff is out of the ring, on one side of the ring, and Muda's out, but not on the, on the same side. Like, it's not like he went outside to attack him. He, like, knocks Muda out and then goes to the outside of the ring somewhere else to, like, yell at the crowd. I'm like, uh, there's a match going on, buddy. <laughs> it's a little weird. Yeah, it's not a bad match, it's just, it's one where if the story is that they want you to, like, build anticipation for the high flyers offense, and, you know, really want to get it back again, I think that works, but it's just too long in the middle for me. It's it's inconsistent, I would say.
0: I think we're in agreement on that. This match can feel kind of slow, and they don't always do a great job of doing things during the holds. Mm Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it feels like they've got a good story concept and some nice subtleties to the strategies that they're portraying. Muda's moves are impressive as always, and Ordorf has some vicious strikes. Both do a good job of some nice counter-wrestling, and the hold escapes are generally more intricate than you often see. It's just that during the long holds, your attention can start to wander a bit. I feel like this is the draft version of a really excellent match. Mm. If it was polished up a bit more and they kept it moving better, it'd be truly great. As it is, it's still pretty good if you can deal with a bit of slowdown here and there. Great commentary by Bischoff on this one too, I have to say, as he really delved into the strategy and helped build the story quite well.
1: Yeah, generally not a huge fan of his commentary. He's trying to fill Sivani's shoes in a lot of ways here, which is understandable. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, this much, I think for the most part, he does deliver quite well on, yeah.
0: He has the advantage, I think, maybe in... I'm, I'm not sure how much he's involved in the booking at this stage. Mm. Probably a fair bit, but... I think so. He has the advantage, I think, that bookers doing commentary actually have a lot of the time, which is that they know the story. Yes. You true. know, so th- so if anyone can build up the story, they can. And I think he puts that to good use here and there across the show, and this match is, is a definite highlight of it. Mm-hmm. That it seems like he knows exactly what they're trying to get across, and takes the time to really call out... Uh, the the elements that he thinks needs to be called out. I agree with you. I, I think his commentary is inconsistent. Mm-hmm. This match, he does quite a good good job in.
1: Yeah. So the other thing with the match B is that, other than sort of amusing themselves by doing the Paula chant, the crowd isn't super invested in Orndorff. Mm-hmm. So it makes the parts where he's control not feel that engaged in the crowd, which, sort of adds to your point of of being slowed down, maybe harder to focus on because it's taking a while. I feel like if they had just brought in someone else with Muda that he worked with regularly, obviously he's real fancy booking, but like, say, Liger, for instance. Mm-hmm. Having someone like those two wrestling, you already have the issue of people not necessarily knowing Muda or remembering him that well because there's a long this, this long gap with him when he leaves, comes back, leaves, comes back over periods of time, so he's not a regular performer.
0: yeah. Though I do have to say, they do get a good uh, shot in the middle of the match of a group of kids chanting like mad for him.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> what I wanted to say, so he he can get the crowd reaction when you let him show his offense and like the, his great elbow drop and his drop kick and stuff like that. So if you've given him a person I think he's more familiar with working with and worked his style, you would have gotten more of that and maybe gotten a stronger match. Mm-hmm. Likewise, you've gotten someone on the WCB roster, like say Ryan Pillman, for instance, or someone like that. That can work his style of match. You again could have gotten more reaction for in this. More impactful match in general. Yeah. Otherwise, it's this weird thing where Muda's come from Japan to defend his Japanese is only title against Paul Orendor for some reason. It's a little weird.
0: I still feel like if they maybe... I don't know how much prep work they've done on this or how many like matches in this is for them. It seems like not very many. Mm-hmm. But it feels like if you'd given them, like I don't know, a house show circuit where they worked out some of the kinks mm-hmm. then... If this was polished a bit more, it actually could have been pretty great, because the style clash actually can work for it quite well. It's just that right now it's still kind of slowing it down too much. Mm-hmm. But yeah, your your point's taken. I think if you wanted to just be like, okay, we who can we plug Muda in with right away and know that the match is going to be just totally solid, Pillman's a great choice. Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, he's the first to make a thing I think of. There's a bunch of people. Yes, I think I picked him because he worked so much with Liger when. Liger was coming back and forth. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Muda, for the most part, would keep wrestling in Japan and have a pretty strong reign with the belt, fending it in multiple shows. As for Orndorf, he would go from challenging Muda for the IWDP title to challenging Renegade for a title.
0: Ugh.
1: A bit of a drop
0: off. Oh, I guess they, it was nice that they gave him something nice before the badness then. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> probably like look i will fight renegade but you have to let me fight muda first so i can feel like you know i accomplished something this year yes exactly <laughs> we get a rather nice video package for the upcoming arn anderson versus alex Wright match
3: the enforcer arn anderson is a seasoned veteran he again holds the world television title looked upon as a blue collar brawler He's willing to do whatever it takes to get the job done. The patent on the spine bust belongs to Arn, and so does the world TV title. He faces Alex Wright in his rookie year. He's proven to be a young German sensation. Alex is on a quest to capture his first title belt, Des Wunderkind, The wonder kid, is rapidly building a style of his own. The Collision Course brings these two face-to-face for the world television title. I, I,
0: w- I would like to see what the patent on the Spine Buster looks like, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so are there diagrams, like rotation angles? and? Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: because his Spine Buster is the like, spin-you-around one. Yes. Whereas you have Ron Simmons as the straight
0: up-and-down Spine Buster, yeah. And they're both terrific. I mean, two totally different versions, but both great. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Agreed. From the video package, we cut to Mean Gene Okerlund with Arn, Ric Flair, and Vader. Vader lumbers around the front of the camera, and Gene asks him to excuse them for a second so he can talk to Arn. So Vader growls at him. (laughs) (laughs)
5: Love
0: it. Oh, yeah.
5: And before we talk about the big main event tonight, Arn Anderson on the subject of that uh, title defense against Alec Wright... You certainly have got a busy evening here at Slamberry. Vader, excuse us one second. Gene Oakland,
4: <laughs> what I'm going to do is teach Alec Wright once and for all, Wonder See, see
2: Alec Wright? God, he did. He age, did, yes. Okay.
4: Call me Mr. Anderson because, pal, I earned it. I didn't get this out of a bubblegum machine. I earned it. Every time I go in that ring tonight, be no different. Then I'm going to watch these guys back.
5: All right, the big main event, and uh, we've got Vader here, but... Uh, You look like you're dressed fit to kill, Ric Flair. But I'm going downtown tonight.
4: We're going to celebrate. Why should I put on my wrestling attire when I go into the ring with Vader? Hogan, you and the Macho Man have run roughshod on this part of the country for the last time. Tonight, at the Bayfront, Flamboree. I turn the big man loose, I stand back, I watch, I admire, and I give praise. Woo! Woo! Talking about the big man, 452 pound baby. Ha! Hogan! Oh yeah, brother! You are looking at the most powerful wrestler in the world today! These are the biggest shoulders in the world today! And brother, itzy and bitsy! itzy! and Bitsy, baby! They're past on eaters, and they're coming out to the ring with me, brother! Not only Ric Flair, not only the Enforcer on Anderson, but yeah! Vader himself, brother. You can run, but you can't hide! No more! It's Vader time! Yeah! Thank you very and much! as you know, we style and we profile, baby! i'm not so sure that i am a legend in professional wrestling whenever you think about all of the years and the great ones whenever you think about hackenschmidt gotch carl and frank and you come on up you got ed strangler lewis you know stecker lundis Steele, thaz o'connor hutton all of these wonderful wrestlers and you move into the present age where you had briscoe as a world's heavyweight champion you have harley race my brother, Dory Funk Jr., and uh, try to try to fill those type of 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 shoes. You know, I I just I just don't really consider myself able to stand toe to toe with those kind of people. But uh, it certainly is a pleasure and an honor to be here. uh.
0: Yeah, they they obviously didn't leave me enough room to cut that again. Thanks, WCW. (laughs) Yeah. But first, let's talk about the main promo. We get some great quick promos from each guy here. Arn really nicely shows his disbelief that he could even be challenged by a rookie. Flair is wonderfully insufferable, claiming that he's going to leave all the work to Vader. Though he does sound like quite a nice boss, actually, focused on positive reinforcement. Yeah, that's true. And Vader's python eaters line is amazing. Mm -hmm. It's a great use of Hogan's habitual dubbing of his biceps, the 24-inch pythons. Also, Vader is terrifying. Extremely.
1: Yeah, i say it speaks to how scary Vader is, the fact that he added a purple stripe to the front of his outfit, and he's still terrifying. (laughs) Yes. I'm still kind of confused by that. Yes, me too. I don't mind a little bit extra color in there. Uh, Just purple is just a weird choice.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: It's like like they're trying to do a unified thing with him and Flair. That's true. A little bit of Flair's color, maybe?
0: Because Flair has a purple robe tonight, so maybe it's that, Yeah.
1: You know what it really show to be though? They come out for their match and Flair is wearing a matching mask.
0: Oh. That would have been great, but I th- but I think Flair's had too many bad experiences with a mask.
1: <laughs> well, he he'd take it off faster than Vader does, so, okay. <laughs> Yes. I'm just picturing Flair's, you know, lovely, boisterous blonde hair, like under those leather straps, though.
0: That would be great. Arn might actually look good in one. You know, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. We cut to Terry Funk mid woo for an uncomfortable close up. Funk says he's not sure he's a legend. Very humble compared to last year. Mm-hmm. And he lists off a huge list of other wrestlers that he doesn't think he measures up to, but he says it's an honor to be here. It is a tad odd that Funk calls Harley Race, Dory Funk Jr., and the Briscoes wrestlers of the quote, present age. Yeah, true. In the background, we get some extra fun because you can spot Alex Wright waiting for his cue to go out, and a besuited Wahoo McDaniel walks by behind Funk. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a lot of ambient background noise in that clip as
2: well.
0: Yes,
1: yeah. To be fair to Terry Funk, you know, maybe he's not the legend that, you know, George Hackenspin is, but George Hackenspin never guest starred in Swamp Thing. So <laughs> he has that. Yeah, it's weird hearing super low-key, polite, uh, gracious Terry Funk after all the stuff I've heard him. Yeah. Even the transition movement we from crazy guy attacking Rick Flair the next year being a friendly commentator still wasn't quite the same as this level here.
0: Right. This is the totally out-of-character Terry Funk. That's I it, think yeah. where it's just, it's just the genuine man. Mm-hmm. And it, it's nice, you know? I mean, yeah, he sure. seems like a good guy.
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely.
0: Our fifth match is, I know I'm going to butcher this again, but I'm going to try it. Okay. Das Wunderkind. Close enough. Alex Wright versus the enforcer, Arn Anderson, for Anderson's WCW World Television Championship. The referee for this one is Randy Anderson. We keep getting these Arn and Randy matches.
1: <laughs> Back in January of 95, Arn regained the TV title and defended it regularly on television. Uh, in the build to this match, he wrestled Alex Wright, which we saw a clips of in the video package, where he lost via DQ, thus setting up a future rematch for Wright, proving that he might be able to beat Arn, but he's got to you know win the proper way to get the title. Right. Now there obviously are a couple questions to whether or not Arn can defeat Wright, because for one thing, the last time he wrestled for this title in the same building, which is 1991, at the first Super Brawl, he lost. Oh, okay. So the question is, can he win this time? I do have a little bit of trivia add to you. I'm kind of amazed I didn't discover this until now. Okay. Every time Arn Anderson has won the TV title, which was four times total in history, it was always in January.
0: Fascinating.
1: I swear, I looked through every single one of them. It's January 1996, first time he wins it, January 1990, January 1991,
0: and January 1995. Wow, that's, that's really neat. It's the reverse January curse. Yeah, he's the uh, you know ceremonial talisman. Yeah, to uh, to purify the January curse. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I found the three
1: like together. And I'm like, okay, there's one more rain. That can't be January. Oh no, it is. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah, it's <laughs> so bizarre. Should we dub it January? Oh, there you go. That'll work.
0: As long as we strictly enforce it. Wright slaps hands with the crowd on the way down and does a great backflip into the ring. Heenan claims he can do that, and Eric scoffs. You can't disprove it, to be fair. The time limit for TV title matches is 30 minutes this year instead of 15. Arn comes out to the awesome, awesome, awesome Horseman theme, walking down the ramp with an intense expression. He gets in Wright's face. Heenan builds up that Wright is so far undefeated. And says that how Wright handles his first defeat will tell us a lot about him. Eric asks how Arne will handle it if Wright beats him. He won't like it. He notes insightful. Wright surprises Arne with a quick arm drag and counters Arne's attempts to duck under him on charges once by just stopping and putting on a headlock, and the second time by stopping jumping over Arne backflipping over Arn again, and nailing a confused Arn with a dropkick when he stands. Heenim praises the young punk for his talent. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Both commentators say that Wright is much less nervous than they thought he'd be. Wright works around a headlock, and Arn occasionally escapes by using the tights. Arn lands some hard hits, but Wright hits an enziguri. Arn rolls Wright over on a headlock for two... As Heenan slightly mispronounces some German, but excuses it by saying that Wright is from South Germany, so he was just imitating the accent. <laughs> Maybe that's my problem. <laughs> there you go. Eric is doubtful. Great spot as Arne gets Wright's leg, but Wright backflips and hits a drop kick. And another as Arne tries to twist free of a headlock, so Wright turns it into a cravat. Arne tries his own enziguri, but Wright just ducks and slaps on an STF. It's a bit sloppy, but a good spot. hmm Arne retreats outside, limping, but Wright baseball slides into him, then dives out onto him. They brawl outside, and Wright dodges an Arn clothesline, so Arne hits the ring post. So, Wright works the arm back inside, as Heenan points out that's the Anderson family tactic. Bischoff says Wright is a second-generation wrestler who studied the sport since he was old enough to talk. Quote Heenan, That could be an hour and a half ago. (laughs) Really nice bit. That is, yeah. Arn and Wright trade hard strikes, and Arn finally dodges a Wright charge and nails his beautiful spinebuster. That stops the momentum. Arn strikes and chokes Wright and tries a figure four, but Wright shoves him away into the turnbuckle. Arn jumps off the second rope, but Wright catches him with a punch to the gut that sends him butt over tea kettle. (laughs) then hits a spinning wheel kick eric actually miscalls a right snap suplex as a snap mare
1: <laughs> slight difference yeah
0: right hits a high angle top rope drop kick for 2 arn cradles him for 1 but right rolls it back over for 2 right repeatedly counters arn corner charges but then lunges out with a clothesline but arn ducks it fakes a punch to get right to duck and hits the ddt for the 3 count and the win beautifully timed the crowd liked Wright, but Arndt still gets big cheers for that finish. We get replays of the beautiful Spinebuster, the Rope Snap, and the DDT. Thoughts on this one?
1: It was actually a pretty fun match. I like that they built their match around Wright really being able to do all his moves. And the idea is that Arndt is ready for a lot of stuff, but maybe he's not ready for the unique offense that Alex Wright has. Mm-hmm. And obviously you have the aspect of him definitely not taking him seriously enough as well, which is a classic wrestling trope as well. Yeah. yeah they have pretty good chemistry together, too. Um, Arn is definitely just willing to go along with all the spots, and he, he keeps up pace pretty well, I thought, as well, too. Yes. It's one of those ones where you definitely you definitely hide the weaknesses and accentuate the strengths of the performers in both cases. Mm-hmm. It's funny, actually, having seen this match, I was watching, I can't remember what show it like, was. I watched some of the random wrestling shows during the weeks, um, as it is, but there's one show I watched, and someone did that same spot where you did the fake-out punch DT, and someone actually mentioned, like, Shade to Ryan Anderson or something like that. I'm like, oh! Nice. That is apparently it's a regular thing he used to do, I guess. Very nice. Yeah. It's nice Alex Wright shows a little more personality, at least responsive to Anderson as well, because that's always been kind of a weakness, is he, he does good moves and he has a good you know, energy, but you never really connect him as a character, per se.
0: Yeah, I felt like this match, you really saw a lot from him in that. Yeah. He's confronting Arn. He's not just doing his moves, which he's always done very well, Mm -hmm. but he's really, really taking the time to, like, make sure that, you know, that he, he feels the need to prove himself. Absolutely, yeah. This was a great match. A showcase for Wright's talent that never made Arn look weak. Wright got to show off his various acrobatic kicks and counter Arn's escapes, building the story that despite being a rookie, he'd studied well for this match and was prepared for Arn. Arn got shown up at every turn, but was just too tough to go down, and whenever he did land a blow or a slam, it felt significant. Especially the mid-match spinebuster. Mm -hmm. They built a tale that Wright was getting the sustained offense But Arm was so practiced that he might only need a single move to take right down. And indeed, that's how it ended up, in an absolutely terrific and perfectly timed final spot, where the canny ring veteran had one too many tricks for the rookie. Mm -hmm. My lone complaint on this one is that they work a bit too much around the side headlock starting out, but they move past it midway through the match, and even while it lasts, they do a lot with it, so it doesn't get too repetitive. Other than that excellent and surprising match,
2: yeah
1: Arn would face his next challenger at the Great American bash, who unfortunately is the renegade. <sighs> Hi, Dave Melser. His heart won't take it.
0: <laughs> they have to they have to saddle Orndorf and Arn with the guy, oh yeah, oh my gosh,
1: in a weird pit of the loser of the match getting better off at the same show, Alec Frywood wrestle a match against Brian Pillman.
0: ooh, that sounds fun,
1: yeah for like, wait, oh, come on, can we switch? That'd be great. Yeah.
0: I wouldn't wish that on Alex Wright either, honestly. No, no. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but if, and if I were Arn, I would, I would try to switch.
0: Yes. We go back to the commentary team, and Eric builds up the upcoming Hogan and Macho versus Flare and Vader match. He then claims that 16 security guards had to drag Hogan, Savage, and Renegade back into the arena after they tried to escape through the windows. <laughs> Eric stares disbelievingly at him the whole time. It's a funny bit. It's great. Eric builds up the upcoming Meng versus Hawk match. Eric gives us a let's get to the ring. (gasps) So close. (laughs) What a rush, Heenan says. (laughs) Our sixth match then is Meng with Colonel Robert Parker versus Road Warrior Hawk in a special surprise bonus match. The referee for this one is Jimmy Jett.
1: Basically, the story is a real sort of last-minute thing. They had a match in the main event shows you talked about earlier with Ming and Brian Pillman as part of the year's title tournament, which is so important that it's not featured on this show. <laughs> apparently. Um, he did the, you know, the heel open challenge, I can take anybody thing, and that's what brought out talk. Okay.
0: O- odd call to start is ring announcer Capetta says he believes... Meng to be accompanied by the greatest promoter on the face of the earth, Colonel Robert Parker. High compliments, Capetta, I guess.
1: <laughs> Seems like you could verify that pretty easily as well.
0: Yeah. Normally, it's more like, you know, he's request to be called yeah. the greatest promoter or something like that, but Capetta apparently is expressing his agreement. Yes.
1: that was the thing they would do with the uh, WWE, with the World's Greatest Tag Team. Right. They always say, the self-proclaimed World's
0: Greatest Tag Team. Like, like you just said it, too, <laughs> so. No. <laughs> Meng has terrific music, very ominous. Mm-hmm. Hawk has something that's clearly supposed to reference the rhythm of Iron Man, but is no longer using the actual song. Yes. As, as Hawk comes out, Eric finally realizes that Heenan was quoting Hawk with that what a rush earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Meng lands strikes and back leg round kicks, according to Eric. A clothesline and a stalling pile driver. But Hawk no-sells and hits a neckbreaker. Meng dodges a Hawk-charging-shoulder block in the corner, and Hawk hits the ring post, then falls out to the floor. That looked unpleasant. A bit, yeah. I'm not really sure he meant to fall out there. Yeah, I'm not clear on that either. Heenan suggests that Parker go get some shots in, and Parker indeed finds the time for a few kicks when Jet lectures Meng for blocking Hawk's re-entry. Meng beats Hawk up outside, and interestingly, rams Hawk into the ring post while Meng is standing on the apron, and Hawk is on the floor, which I don't think I've ever seen. That is an interesting version that, isn't it, yeah. Back in, Meng gets two off a of backbreaker. They fire hard strikes at each other until Hawk grabs Meng's leg on a kick, and clotheslines him flat. Hawk hits an almost vertical jumping shoulder block, then a fist drop for two. Hawk clotheslines and slams Meng, then tries... Something that involves jumping and doing the splits off the top rope. (laughs) Weird spot. Meng dodges and Hawk eats Matt and rolls outside. They brawl, but Jet quickly counts both out, and the match is a draw. Doug Dellinger immediately brings a whole load of wrestlers to break up the continuing fight, many of which have wonderful hair. Mm -hmm. Hawk gets free and goes after Meng again, and after he's dragged away, Meng just about Dex Doug Dellinger to get to Hawk. One of the wrestlers trying to restrain Meng, I noticed oddly looks like a long-haired, muscly Tony Schiavone. He does, yes. Maybe that's where he actually was. <laughs> that would explain a lot. <laughs> they finally get it broken up, and Hawk poses for the crowd before exiting. Thoughts on this one?
1: Uh, it was one where I like it to a point, but it doesn't you you I you know, you kinda know they're not gonna give you a finish because they're clearly building up Ming for a lot of stuff and it's hawks, so you don't expect a clean loss from for many obvious reasons. So it's kinda fun for what it is, but I think for me anyways, I quickly realized where they're going with this. So I it's hard it was hard to get me invested because the yeah. point view, it's not really a story here either. But I like, I know they're not gonna give you a clean finish with these people, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. The one thing I will say is the crowd seemed really into it. Yes, so, yes, they did. There were matches where I don't like it, but if the crowd didn't do it, I can at least say, well, it did its job in that regard. So I can't you know, be too harsh on something like that. Obviously, some matches are so bad, I can, I can still be mad about it, but other ones, <laughs> <laughs> this isn't that bad. They definitely really seem like they have a good intensity between the two of them. It's definitely pretty solid. It's just kind of a shame that it ends so abruptly like that.
0: Yeah, this was a decent little brawl, albeit one with somewhat suspect selling on Hawk's part. He just didn't do a great job of looking dazed, and that was much of his role for the match. True, yeah. There are some good spots to this, though. Hawk's possibly accidental fall outside being a particular highlight, and I enjoyed the big swings and the hard hits. But the lack of an ending really, really hurts, I agree, especially with how unceremonious it all feels. It doesn't feel like they were spending much time out there, especially compared to how long Hawk was out after his spill. But it just kind of ends anyway. I doubt this was actually put together just before the show, like it was in storyline. Mm-mm. But it kind of feels like it was. Mm-hmm. Not actually bad, but less than the sum of its parts.
1: Yeah, so this might sound, know, it might sound weird. It might sound like I'm nitpicking. But I'm oddly less bothered by the matches that end in double qualification like the St. hansen vader match which i liked more than you did obviously mm-hmm. then with the double countout ones because i don't know there you get a certain level of intensity from those where they're, they're fighting so so aggressively and the ref just in the way you still don't get a finish it's still a way to have no one lose but the out one is like oh they were, they were fighting too hard but in the wrong part
0: yeah i i think i agree with you honestly on that i with the double DQ, it at least tells you something about the characters.
2: hmm yeah.
0: I, I guess you can argue that they're doing the same thing with the count where it's like, oh, they're too into it that they're not paying attention to the rules anymore. Right. But that's a less strong statement than, oh my gosh, they were so wild that they were a danger to themselves and others.
1: Yeah. Like, yeah, like going back to the, the Vader Hansen one, you know, they're grabbing the chairs from ringside, and they're like, both hit the ref, you know, stuff like yeah. that. It's not just, oh, they, they roll that aside for a move and then stood out there for more than 12 seconds, so... The match is over. Bischoff mentions that he suspects we'll see these two um, have another match. Well, that tendly did happen. In August, so a couple months away from now, at Clash 31, there'd be a tag team match between Sting and World Warrior Hawk, reuniting to hopefully erase the memory of that other match we talked about at the beginning of the show. Scorpahawks forever. Absolutely. <laughs> Against the interesting team of Ming and Kurosawa. Japanese wrestler they brought in around this time. Huh. Unfortunately, in that regard, there would be legit arm injury to Rory Hawk, which they would write into the storyline there. So it's weird that it's like this fight between these two guys. You can't keep them apart. Uh, Or you can, I guess, for quite a long
0: period of time. (laughs) Back to Eric and Heenan, and Eric builds up the upcoming Hall of Fame ceremony. Heenan doesn't give a crap, because he's not being inducted. Yep, there you go. Eric tries to comfort him by saying if he was inducted, who would sit with Eric to commentate? Hena says he'd do both. <laughs> Eric sighs and throws to Gordon Soley for the Hall of Fame. This year, the Hall of Fame ceremony is conducted on the stage, in front of the red curtains, rather than in the ring. As each inductee is introduced, Soley goes over their accomplishments in wrestling and otherwise, and classy video packages of pictures and clips are played to nice, quiet music. Each inductee receives a neat, small obelisk trophy and a bouquet, and even gets to make a neat little speech, thanking the crowd and honoring their family, friends, and supporters. This crowd, by the way, is very appreciative of all of this right away. This year we get Wahoo McDaniel, Terry Funk, hi mom, (laughs) Angelo Poffo, Antonio Inoki, Big John Studd, who's posthumous, and Dusty Rhodes. It's worth noting that Gordon Soli was reportedly upset at Puffo's induction and felt he was not as worthy as the others, but he's still entirely respectful and builds him up as much as the other inductees. There's some neat moments here. We get a cartoon drawing of Funk from what I assume was a Japanese show card. Soli calls out Funk's movie career, even including Over the Top. Nice. Soli mentions Angelo Pafo is in Ripley's Believe It or Not for completing 6,033 consecutive sit-ups in 4 hours and 10 minutes. <laughs> and we see some pictures of the article. Soli mentions the North Korea show, and we get some clips of that during Antonio Inoki's video package. Inoki's interpreter gives a speech for him with just an entirely different tone, very official. It adds to the formal and honored feel here. There's a truly wonderful picture of Big John Studd with his family in his video. Soli calls out his film appearances too, and his son Robert accepts on his behalf. Soli reads a poem written by Studd's niece for Stud's funeral, and young Robert even reads a speech. He's clearly nervous, but he gets through it pretty well. Soli tells us that there's a USF course called The American Dream that frequently featured Dusty Rhodes as a guest speaker. Sully really seems to enjoy Dusty's induction in particular, and Dusty's children, Teal and Cody, accompany him out. Future WWE and AEW star Cody gets to hold the trophy. (laughs) And Dusty's other kids, Dustin and Kristen, get mentioned, as does grandbaby Dakota in a really sweet moment. Mm -hmm. Dusty really honors all the rest of the legends as well, and challenges the current generation to follow in their footsteps. Soly starts to step up to the stand again, but Dusty suddenly says he almost forgot something. Mean Jean comes out from the back as Dusty announces there's one other inductee tonight, the greatest announcer in the history of sports. Soly looks towards Jean, starting to beckon him forward, but Jean points at Soly and shakes his hand. Soly looks back and forth between Gene and Dusty, stunned, (laughs) as Dusty starts speaking about Soly's accomplishments and integrity. And we get a great video package of him, including a terrific shot of Andre the Giant towering over him. Dusty presents Soly with the trophy and bouquet, and for once, Gordon Soly has no idea what to say. (laughs) He finally manages that it's a dream come true, and gives his thanks with tears in his eyes. This honor had to be particularly emotional for Soli, as he was planning to resign from WCW. According to the book The Soli Chronicles, Soli drafted a resignation letter in 1995 due to dissatisfaction with working for WCW, mentioning in particular that he felt that wrestling was becoming a live cartoon, but he didn't mail it right away. He intended to stay on for Slamboree, but then found that he was actually not consulted at all regarding the Hall of Fame inductees. Really? Yeah, and he was angry.
1: Yeah, sure.
0: I do kind of wonder if that was because they were trying to hide his induction from him, rather than intended disrespect, but it apparently just doesn't go over very well.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure on that. Maybe I could see the either way in that movie,
0: yeah. Apparently things got so hot that Soli actually said he was fired by Eric Bischoff. But- Gary Juster then called him and made peace and got Soli back, and he actually does it in part by revealing that Soli will be inducted. So Soli does know about the induction in advance, but he still seems shocked, so I kind of wonder if he thought that it might not happen after all, with the bad blood between him and some WCW executives at the time. Despite the things going on behind the scenes, this is an absolutely touching and beautiful moment and a well-deserved honor for one of the greatest commentators of all time, Soley ended up being the only non-wrestler inducted into the WCW Hall of Fame. Gordon Soli would resign from WCW in 1995 as he planned, and not long afterwards, he would be diagnosed with cancer. He would pass away from throat cancer in July of 2000, age 71 he would be posthumously inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame as well in 2008. In 2005, a collection of his short stories and poetry would be published posthumously under the title, Gordon Soley Left Something Behind. Hmm. Yes, he did. An unmatched legendary announcer, Soley is still spoken of with deep respect by those who worked with him. While we've only gotten to scratch the surface of his long career on our show, I've appreciated every appearance, and I know I'm going to look back in the future to find more of Gordon Soly's incredible voice. Thoughts on the Hall of Fame?
1: Yeah, it was really nice. Um, I liked the setup they had here. It's a shame they have three different shows and three different setups for how this is going to work. Eventually, nice they a, found a solid, one good way to do it and stuck with it, but... I think this this format, whether on the stage, is nice. Not surrounding in the ring like that was kind of awkward. Especially the ring got more full as people got in there. They shouldn't hear all of the behind the scenes stuff, like with solely and that I hadn't heard a lot of that. The other thing about that kind of shooting with the timing is that they're inducting Dusty in the Hall of Fame. This is like right after they fired his his son too. Yes, yes, it is. As part of the whole since '95, um, you're supposed to bleed in this match. beat it anyways. Thing, which, <laughs> but I guess it must be it must be be a a road thing because that happened to Dusty as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just whatever you do, don't tell Cody not to bleed in their match because he's gonna do it, and then you have to fire him. <laughs> yeah, pretty it's much. Just, it's just tradition, family. But credit to how they do the show, though, because you wouldn't necessarily know all that behind the scenes stuff, like the back and forth drama. I'm watching it, it plays like a nice Hall of Fame ceremony during the show. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: It doesn't seem to affect anything, which is nice.
0: Yes. Yeah, I think, like, like I said, the only impact it might have is that Soli is aware beforehand, so it's not completely a surprise for him, but he still seems shocked. So either he is the greatest actor in the history of wrestling,
2: mm-hmm.
0: which is possible, yeah. or he just actually was maybe thinking maybe it won't happen, or maybe it's just surprised that as, with how it's happening. In any case, it's just a wonderful moment.
2: Yeah.
1: The Papa thing is interesting because, so obviously, I have a sort of weird personal connection to Tim, even though I've never met. Any any of them at all. Yes. Uh, <laughs> this familial thing. But it's interesting that, you know, you're talking about Big John Stud and Dusty Road and all these people. You have a long career. Where they worked here, won these titles, headlined these shows. And then it's Angelo Paffa, who did, uh, looking up, he did have a pretty lengthy career over a long period of time, but he did in very specific, like regional territories, like in the Chicago area from the 50s, for instance. Right. And his, you know, his big career highlight is doing, admittedly, a lot of sit-ups, way more than I'll ever do in my life, probably. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, but even that, uh, I looked that up. That was, sorry, like, sorry, it, I
0: didn't mean to sound like I was bashing you there. Oh, <laughs> I, I, I know. know, I know.
1: That sounded <laughs> six thousand is a lot for anybody to do in a lifetime. To be fair.
0: Yes. But
1: <laughs> but that, that's an interesting achievement. I'm actually meant to look and see if it's still in the Ripley's Believe it or Not books. But yeah, it's like he did a lot of sit-ups, which is impressive, but he did it in 1945, and it's also before he was in a wrestler. So I don't know, it's maybe to Gordon's point. Yeah. He deserves to be honored, for sure. I and mean, Anyone that works in an industry like that should be, but maybe there's a distinction between the two.
0: Yeah, I don't think that Gordon is saying that Poffo is actually bad. Oh, no. I think what yeah. he's saying is that compared to the other names that are being honored and have been honored in the Hall of Fame... He does not feel that Pafo has reached that level, that singular level of achievement.
1: Yeah. Once only, reading on his wiki page, it's pretty interesting, on Angel Pafo. Mm-hmm. He said, in 1966, he formed a villainous tag team with kind of Chris Markov, where they're called the Devil's Duo. Wow. You never guess who their manager was. Kevin Sullivan? Bobby Heenan. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Also, he also at some point, he also teamed up with a guy named Nikoli Volkov. Not Nikolai Volkov, so it's a little confusing <laughs> as well. So in the 1780s, uh, Angelo Poffo wrestled in, as a mass character in the Atlantic Grand Prix Wrestling Association.
0: Interesting name?
1: Yes. It was apparently in the, apparently, the Maritime pro- Provinces of Canada. Oh. So while he was there, he was a one-time AGPW North American Tag Team Champion. And you'll never guess who he was, t- who he was championed with. I will not. Uh, Los Especialita. Especialista. Really? Two. Yeah, that's what it says. <laughs> so, again, that's getting more of him than I ever thought I could get, yeah.
0: Now, no, Los Especialita number two was the one that owned, owned the sports bar, or was that number one? That's number two. Okay.
1: Yeah, David Canales, that's his name is, yeah. That is
0: funny. All sorts of weird connections tonight.
1: Exactly. But yeah, like if, if you don't, didn't know any of the drama. It's a really nice just hall of fame for these people. Mm-hmm. So yeah, absolutely it works.
0: Yeah, this was, again, terrific. Yeah.
1: I look forward to seeing the one next year.
0: <laughs> the addition of the speeches by the inductees lengthens it a bit, but it also makes it feel more formal and adds some of the focus on the legends that was heavily missing for the rest of this night. The only one I'm a little torn on is Paphos, as he used it more to build up the main event match tonight than to talk about his induction. Mm-hmm. And while I did like the legends being used to build up the modern in the prior years, it feels like the Hall of Fame should just be solidly their time. Yeah. But as before, this was a beautiful, touching tribute to the greats of wrestling. as made all the better by the inclusion of the well-deserving Gordon Solie. I really liked it being relocated to the stage like you did, Al.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think it gives it a much more dignified backdrop and a totally different atmosphere than the rest of the show. And the shots that we get of the gathered legends to either side of Gordon Soley are a terrific closing. As you alluded, this is the last of WCW's Hall of Fame ceremonies. Making Gordon Soley the final WCW Hall of Fame inductee. The ceremonies, much like Soley himself, will be dearly missed.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: We go to Mean Gene Okerlund who offers his congratulations to Gordon Soly and welcomes Sting. Sting is dressed in blue and orange today, but no sparkly jacket. Oh!
5: And by the way, Gordon Soley, I want to add my congratulations. What an honor. Now seven men, seven more. On, WCW Hall of Fame. Now, Sting, come on in. You have got the fight for your life, many say, moments from now as you meet Big Bubba. Earlier he said this is going to be a repeat of Uncensored. Uh,
4: No chance for a repeat just like Uncensored, Big Bubba. It's going to be a totally different picture. Remember, I keep talking about that Scorpion Deathlock. It will happen tonight, and it will happen with some fierce kind of
5: attitude coming from me, the Stinger. Watch it, Bubba. Alright, Sting is all ready for Big Bubba, it is part of the continuing action at Slamboree, a Legends reunion. You have seen the seven legends inducted into
0: the- Really short, but highly energetic Sting promo here. In just a few short words, he effectively argues against Bubba's earlier promo, and showcases his intensity and desire to win. It's really quick, but I thought it worked very well, and it helps showcase Sting's determination not to repeat a prior loss. Ah uh, yeah, that was good. It's uh,
1: interesting a little bit of foreshadowing for sarcastic sting. Will get it. We'll get at Stark and as well. A little
0: bit, yeah. And this is the same year, so. That's true, yeah.
1: To make sure I'm a little more edge to in his character, which is always nice.
0: Yeah, I like that he manages to do that without becoming something other than other than a good guy. Oh yeah, for sure. Like a lot of people think in order to add some edge, you have to like start doing dishonorable things or be an anti-hero or something like that. Right, but Sting right. manages to be purely a good guy still during all of this. But Get that little bit of a an edge to the character, like you said.
1: Yeah, he even he, as he, a good guy. He takes it personally. That right. guy thinks he's the pushover, and that you know, yeah, it's going to happen again, and there's no way you can win. Which yeah, it makes perfect sense to feel that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: it's it's fighting spirit, but it's fighting spirit that's more directly personalized. He recognizes, like Bubba does, that this is about his reputation.
1: Exactly. Not the longest promo, but it's definitely a nice, succinct, assertive promo. Yeah.
0: Yes. Our seventh match is Big Bubba Rogers versus Sting in a special lights-out match. The referee for this one is Nick Patrick.
1: So at Clash number 30, there was a match between Sting and Avalanche with the now twice rebranded Big Bubba Rogers as the guest referee. At that point, he was the guardian angel, I believe. To keep track of its characters at certain points in time yeah. in his company.
0: I think it's been relatively recent because they spend a lot of time in this match talking about how he used to be the Guardian Angel. Yes. Without actually ever saying the words Guardian Angel, I think. Correct. Because the Guardian Angels are rather mad at them now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Correct, yeah. The yeah, he was the Guardian Angel in that match as the guest referee, but he turns heel on Tax Ding and then abandoned that. And as Heenan will point on commentary, he's tired of doing things for, for people without getting a reward and everything, which obviously is a very Heenan way of looking at things. Yes. Why help someone when they'll get no benefit from it? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this will lead to a tag team match where it is uh, Randy Savage and Sting against Avalanche and Big Bo Rogers at Super Bowl, I believe is the show. And then Uncensored, you have the match they mention. Okay. Which Big Bubba got the win on him.
0: Okay. Bubba's entrance music is pretty awesome. He talks to the camera on the way down, repeating that he's lost faith in Sting, and smiles confidently as he takes off his jacket in the ring. Sting comes down with a large table held overhead. Kind of wish he'd painted it and put on some glitter, since he doesn't have his Sting jacket this year. That would been nice, actually, yeah. He hurls the table into the ring, and Bubba scampers. Eric finally clarifies that a lights-out match means that all bets are off, all rules are off. So basically, it's just a no-DQ match, I guess. Yes. I thought it would have something to do with, you know, the lights. Because, yeah, they
1: said earlier that the lights would would flicker off in the arena. Yeah. That's Oakland, I think, says that, yeah.
0: Regardless of the apparent no-DQ stipulation, Nick Patrick shoves the table out of the ring.
1: (laughs) Well, he he knows it's not going to be a point of the match yet.
0: By the way, can we just take a moment to point out how Impressive it is for Sting to walk the whole distance to the ring, carrying the table over his head with like no sign of any trouble with the weight or the balance.
1: Oh, for sure. and That's a pretty straight table, too. Yeah,
0: that, that's not that's not easy to do, even if you're strong. No, no, no. For <laughs> sure. Yeah. Last strain your
1: arms that way. Yeah.
0: Bubba mocks the Stinger call. So Sting gives the real thing and the crowd erupts. Heenan says you're going to hear Sting scream once again once Bubba gets his hands on him.
1: Actually, to clarify, he says you'll well, hear Sting screaming as him once against hand on the hand on his neck. That is true. Which makes less sense, because you would be choking him. I guess you figure maybe he
0: screams slightly before the choke.
1: I, okay, sure.
0: <laughs> we'll go with that. Bubba uses the hair to throw Sting to the mat, but Sting kips up and hits a high-jumping drop kick as Eric and Heenan both praise his leaping ability. Bubba rakes his eyes and lands punches and chokes him with his tie. But Sting breaks free, dropkicks him again, and tells him he'll take everything he's got. Someone in the crowd gives a really nice stinger call themselves, and Sting does his own in response to huge cheers. <laughs> I remember on uh, Starcade 94, I think it was, he also acknowledged someone in the crowd doing that. Oh yeah, I remember that one. That was cool. Mm-hmm. Bubba lands hard strikes, but Sting dodges the clothesline and hits his own for two. Bubba throws Sting to the stairs and rams him into them, but Sting blocks attempts to ram him into his own table and sends Bubba into it. Bubba throws powder in Sting's eyes and throws him into the table, as Heenan jokes that he hit Sting so hard dust flew out of his ears. (laughs) Bubba flings the table into the ring, and they send each other into it, but Bubba dodges a Stinger splash, and Sting hits the table hard. Bubba whips Sting with his belt, and hits a boss man slam. A Bubba slam? A boss slam? Maybe. Guardian slam? That sounds counterintuitive.
1: A bit, yes. <laughs> a little bit.
0: Whatever you call it, it gets two and nine tenths, as Patrick's hand actually hits the mat, but Sting got his shoulder up a split second before. Perfect timing there. Oh, yeah. Patrick actually motions to Bubba just how close it was in a great moment. Bubba goes up top for a Flare Karma special, <laughs> and Sting hits a top rope splash with incredible hang time for two, then knocks Bubba down with a series of strikes, places the table on top of him, double stomps the table, and finally locks on the Scorpion Deathlock for the submission victory. Sting celebrates on the turnbuckle, and we get replays of the powder, the top rope splash, the double stomp on the table, and the Scorpion Deathlock. Thoughts on this one?
1: I thought it was a really fun match. Once you get past the idea that they're calling a lights out match, and it's not clear what the point of that name is and what the rules are, they work a really good match. Mm-hmm. Like you said, Sting really works the crowd here, which is nice. Bubba, to, to his credit, as a heel, works the crowd really well. He gives Sting some to work off of, which is always nice.
0: Absolutely, I, I loved in particular him mocking the stinger call. Yes, starting out, he he does like a so sarcastic version of it. <laughs> yeah. Much better than Kensuke Sasaki's version.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Remember that one. <laughs> Not great. There's a lot of good crowd interaction. They have a good, quick, steady pace with everything. Sting's dropkick and his moves are really nice to see. Not a huge fan of his orange tights, but I can, that's a pretty minor, minor issue with the match, really. I was wondering if it was like a, a gator's thing since he's in Florida. Yeah, maybe. Was he wearing um, green with it as well, though? Because that's the way we'd be able to tell.
0: Isn't it orange and blue?
1: Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I don't follow football, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> Me neither. I will say, so the table thing is interesting because they bring one table out and they decide this is the only weapon we're going to use in this no DQ match, I guess. But they do a pretty good job with that. I like that that they put it outside and then it comes into play and then they, you know, it comes around a couple of times mm-hmm. and ultimately is key to the finish because he thomps the table into him, tweaking his back more for the hole to work. Yes. So, it kind of like going back to the sting match that worked really well, the King of Cable match. Yeah. If you can get past the idea that, what the hell was the King of Cable, and I had to explain this weird logic of it was their, like, anniversary on TPS or something. Yeah. Ignoring all that, the actual match is really good. I don't think this is quite as good as that, but it's given that I've never been a huge fan, at least at this point in time, Big Bobo's matches. They're never bad. They're just, I don't know, his sprawling style doesn't always mesh with people well. Again, I think it worked with Rick Rude and the one StarK we got. Mm-hmm. But yeah, him and Sting, credit to them, they worked together a bunch of times at this point, this being the blow-off, so they, they really worked all the kinks out of this match. The timings were a little bit, that kick out, you have the dodging of the Stinger Splash, all these things, they build up really nicely.
0: Yeah, it feels like a match between two guys that know each other. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I still don't get the lights out concept, but the actual match was pretty great. Mm -hmm. Sting and Bubba both have tons of character and interacted really well with the crowd. And they did a good job of working around the table without making every single thing about the table. Yes. We have some nice hard looking strikes from both that made this feel like a tough brawl. And Bubba mixed in some good slams while Sting added his incredible jumping ability. Mm -hmm. What I thought was particularly neat here... Was that even though they set up the table in a lot of different places, they always got it done fast, without interruptions, so it never broke the match flow, and it always seemed to work with their strategy. Yeah, It just made sense how they were using it, unlike in a lot of later hardcore matches. Good match, with a lot of variety in the action, and a ton of character. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: There's no big bubble on the next show, however. Sting is... Something I mentioned in the show, he's part of the WCW United States title tournament that's going on at this point. So we're on the B and C shows. And he'd ultimately made up the finals of that tournament at the Great American Bass show where he'd fight Ming.
0: Oh, okay. Eric throws to a video package building up the Hogan and Savage versus Flair and Vader match. And he then gives us a woo Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair. Randy
3: Savage Theater Four of the biggest stars in wrestling Future Hall of Famers Legends in their own time in the ring at the same time Hulk Hogan WCW World Champion The most recognized wrestler on the planet Along with Renegade and manager Jimmy Hart Have united with Macho Man Randy Savage to form The Monster Maniacs The Opposition Nature Boy Ric Flair. The crazed ringmaster obsessed with beating the world champion. He's teamed up with the awesome Vader and has brought the enforcer Arn Anderson. Tonight, WCW is where the stars are. In this colossal tag team main event on Slamboree 95.
0: This was decent enough. But it didn't really tell us anything we didn't know already, aside from maybe highlighting Flair's obsession with beating Hogan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just basically says the match is happening without much building the story Let led us here. Had nice funky beat to it, though. It did. It did. And it is more of a video package than we normally get from WCW shows. Yes. Plus, it has a great shot of Flair apparently chopping a cardboard cutout of Hogan. So so <laughs> there's that.
1: <laughs> it's the only written Hogan that would let him go over, I
0: guess. <laughs> Probably still pinned him off camera. Yeah, that's true.
1: <laughs> uh, it, it's nice to get a video package. It doesn't say a whole lot of new information, but it's nice to have it all the same.
0: Yeah, yeah. It. I mean, I think when you do one, it helps to highlight the match. Even if you do just a really short one like this that doesn't add new information, at the very least you're saying, hey, this match was important enough to get a video package. Yeah. We felt the need to remind you. <laughs> so our final match is... The Nature Boy, Ric Flair, and Vader, with The Enforcer, Arn Anderson, versus Hulk Hogan, and The Macho Man, Randy Savage, with The Mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart, and The Counterfeit, Renegade. <laughs> the referee for this one is Randy Anderson. Just just to clarify, we in this match have two Andersons and two Randys, so for minimal confusion, I'm going to call Arn Anderson, Arn, Randy Savage, Savage, and Randy Anderson, the ref. Because <laughs> there's no words left to use. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true.
1: So since arcade, Vader has been gunning for Hogan's title, as the video package slightly alluded to. What they've been doing is they've been having him lose in non non-deci- very non-decisive ways. So you have Vader telling it to beat Hogan, but they don't have Hogan pin Vader either. Mm-hmm. They found ways to do that, and a lot of those involve Ric Flair as well. We'll cover the uncensored show. There's a really screwy where they have a oh, F. Hogan beat right. Vader without, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll cover that. The idea is that since both of them are going after Hogan, they've united together in a strong front. Almost like a three horsemen kind of thing going on. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah, I'll tell you one more person to really round things out. Meanwhile, as, as they mentioned as well, Hogan has brought in his ultimate surprise, quote unquote, in the form of Renegade, to deal with Arn and other interference that may happen.
0: And Renegade is, of course, meant to be... Ultimate warrior. Yes.
1: Yes. And it's the ultimate surprise.
0: Yes. And literally shown in
1: silhouettes and doing the same gestures when you see his introduction. Yep. There's abs- absolutely no no question what they were trying to make you think it was.
0: Yeah. That's embarrassing, let's put it that Mm way.
1: Yeah, it's fake diesel and uh, uh, razor level, yeah. Yes, yeah.
0: For sure. Michael Buffer does the introductions. He says this is between the living legends of the WCW. (laughs) Of course he does. Flair, Vader, and Arn are out first to Flair's theme. Flair has a very nice purple and silver robe. Hogan, Savage, and Jimmy Hart come out to Hogan's theme. Macho has an absolutely awesome red and yellow version of his traditional jacket and cowboy hat. (laughs) During their entrance, the man soon to be known as The Giant briefly appears on stage behind them. Even at a distance, he makes an amazing impression. Yeah. He goes backstage after a few moments as Buffer proclaims Hogan, The King of Hulk-mania. Worth it, worth every penny, that Michael Buffer. Oh, yeah. Flair and Vader retreat from the ring as Hogan and Savage charge it, but Vader gets back in, and Hogan gets a very worried look. Weird rhythmic music hits, and Renegade charges down to the ring, trying his best to look like he's the ultimate warrior. He is not. He is not, yes. I will admit he does a pretty good imitation of the mannerisms, though. Mm-hmm. Sure. Arn gives us a terrific bug-eyed reaction. (laughs) We get a shot of Angelo Paffo looking on from the crowd. Renegade stops Flair from ambushing Hogan and Savage, and Hogan nervously starts against Vader. Vader shoves Hogan around and lands strikes, but Hogan blocks, pokes him in the eyes, and fires back. Vader disposes of his mask, and Hogan clotheslines him out of the ring. Savage leaps outside with the double axe handle to Vader. Back in, Savage and Hogan double team Vader, but he clotheslines both flat. Vader flings Savage through the ropes, and Flair sends him over the barricade. Back in, it's Flair versus Savage. Savage sends Flair flipping over the turnbuckle to the apron, where Hogan lands a big boot. Flair stomps out onto the entrance ramp and then flops. <laughs> <laughs> Hogan sends him back in, and Savage clotheslides him right back out. Back in, Flair pokes Savage's eye, but Savage makes the tag to Hogan, who destroys Flair. Flair eye poke again gives him a moment, but he goes up top, and karma happens. <laughs> Hogan slaps on a moderately decent figure four leg lock, and Arn tries to break it up, but Hogan rolls him up too. But he breaks the hold to yell at Arn, so Flair chop locks him in the knee. Flair kicks and knee drops Hogan's knee, which looks very painful. (laughs) Yeah. And he tags Vader to turn Hogan's leg into a pretzel. (laughs) The giant appears on stage once again, terrifying Jimmy Hart. Amusingly, I think Hart keeps like calling for Hogan, like, oh, look at this huge guy. And Hogan's, I would imagine in his head, he's like, kind of (laughs) busy. Yeah, right. Kind of in pain. (laughs) (laughs) Vader suplexes Hogan, but he no-sells but Vader just knocks him flat when he goes for a back body drop. Savage charges, and Flair chokes Hogan. Savage slaps Vader to get him angry, and Vader hurls the ref aside, but stops as Savage makes him realize what he just did. Flair breaks the choke to avoid a DQ. Vader squishes Hogan in the corner, and hits a second rope splash, but Hogan rolls away from a top rope splash. Vader tags Flair, but Hogan drags himself along the ropes to tag Savage in the nick of time. Flair Karma leads to Savage's top rope elbow drop, but Arn pulls Savage out of the ring, leading him to a Vader clothesline. Renegade takes Arn away, and Vader flings Savage into the ring. Flair belatedly remembers to tag Vader after going to the apron. Yeah, rules are s- rules. Mills, I guess that counts. <laughs> sure, why not? Vader Salt gets two as Hogan breaks, and Vader bowls over the poor ref, just standing up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Vader pounds Savage into pudding, but Savage wins slugfest against Flair and lands a clothesline. Both are down. Flair recovers first, but Savage dives for Hogan and makes the tag. Hogan runs wild with punches, clotheslines, and slams, finally slamming Vader to huge cheers. He whips Flair to the ropes for a big boot, but Arm pulls his injured leg, and he goes down. Vader splashes him, and Flair earns two off of that. Savage goes after Vader, and Hogan hulks up. You! Punch! But Arn gets on the apron again, and Hogan goes after him. Flair grabs Hogan, and Arn tries a top-rope double X-handle. But Hogan ducks, and Arn nails Flair. Hogan hits the leg drop for the three count and the win. Heenan insists that Renegade had no business being out there, but Eric questions him about Arn, and Heenan says that Arn was fine, he's TV champion. Oh, there you go. He'd <laughs> he like to be on TV. Yeah. yeah, he's gotta be, yeah. The faces pose in the ring, but the heels get back in and fling Hogan, Renegade, and Hart out. Vader goes after Hogan, and Arn and Flair beat Savage up. Angelo Poffo gets in, and Flair stops, smiling at Poffo. But then Arn grabs Paffo and Flair lays in punches. Flair puts the figure-four leg lock on Paffo, and Arn stomps Paffo's leg. Hogan and Renegade finally make it back into the ring and run Flair and Arn off, and Savage recovers enough to check on his dad. Jimmy Hart screams for help, as Savage is distraught and screams for an ambulance. Eric signs off as we go to credits. Thoughts on this match? I
1: thought it was pretty good. The tag match formula... Sort of faces out all the sort of cliches you expect with Hogan matches. Gives you more time to build up someone being in peril, so he can make his big, of course, make his big comeback and hit his big boot and all that. In that context, I think the match is good. Obviously, all four people are legendary in wrestling for earned or unearned or you know good, good or bad reasons. So there's no no weak link in the actual match itself. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Renegade is... I'm not counting him because he's kind of an outside factor. He, he's not
0: He's not in the match, yeah.
1: Exactly, yeah. They've not like a six-man match where they put them both in there. Ugh. Imagine Vader would put a stop to that. He's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and if Vader says no, it just it's like a yeah, no. Yeah, you you listen. Exactly, yeah. I think my only issue is that it feels weird having the world champion in a tag match to main event your show when he could be, you know, defending his title.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I know you'll make the point that the interference backfiring does protect Flair a little bit, which I will agree it does. Mind you, Flair has lost like, what, 30,000 times to Hogan at this point already? Yes, yeah. So one more not going to kill him. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I feel like if you're going to have a match like this where t- there's no real stakes and titles not on the line, then use it for something bigger. Like, you know, how Vader beat Savage you know, the match somehow or something like that. Or, heaven forbid, someone pins Hogan. Mm-hmm. Even if you obviously have a million things happen to, give him, to protect his loss. Like, I say, well, if you could keep the Vader-Hogan thing going further, if you have Vader managed to, you know, get a sneaky, cheap pin on Hogan. So you go, hey, look, I, I beat you. Now i get now I get worth my title shot. That'd be nice. Having the champion in the match, whether it's Hogan or not, and then not having his team lose in some way to build up future matches seems kind of like, kind of missed opportunity.
0: I can see that. I don't really have a problem with it myself. I think they did a good enough job of showing that the feud between these four had gotten heated enough that it kind of explained, one, why they were having this in lieu of a world title match. Mm. Just that it's like, okay, this is an issue that has to be revol- resolved, but it has to be resolved between the, the four of them. And that, that kind of, for me, did enough to excuse it. I see your point on that it would have been interesting story-wise to have the champion then lose the match, but I don't have a problem with the way that they did it. And I can kind of see, on the one hand, it extends the story, but on the other hand, it actually almost also extends the story for all four men. Hmm. And if your intent is to go on with all four men, that's fine. But if your intent is to like transition it now to purely a feud between like Hogan and Vader alone, or... Move them on to other things or something. Then you don't want to have uh, the champion pinned in the match. Mm-hmm. But I, I do take your point. That would be an interesting story,
1: right? Because, like I said, there's, there's no stakes in this match,
0: so you can have a champion lose a match. But, to the, set but, there's, up. but there's honor and and fighting and 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 manliness. Those are all. Those are all two things. Yes. <laughs> yeah,
1: I think there's one the situation where. Because it's certainly not a nitro yet, that's but mm-hmm. October, September, October, later this, this same year. This would be a really strong main event for Nitro if yes. it exists at the time. So matches like this happened on pay-per-view until then because they don't have a show to fill out with. Right. It's not, I'm not saying it's a, and I'm not saying it's a bad main event. I just feel like you could do more because it's a pay show.
0: No, absolutely. Yeah, that's all. I thought this was pretty good. All four had the crowd in the palm of their hand, getting terrific reactions for every move. I'll admit I was worried in the early moments that Vader would just be a punching bag, but from the moment he shrugged it all off and double-clotheslined our heroes down, it became clear that this would still be Vader, not the weird version of him that we got against Jim Duggan at stargate 94.
1: Oh yeah, I definitely agree. They, they handled Vader pretty well in this match, yeah.
0: I really liked the leg injury story with Hogan. I was expecting it to lead to a figure four, but it nicely provided a way for Arn to interrupt a comeback instead. The hot tag spots for the faces were very good, with everybody making those as close as they possibly could be, and both sides interacted with a ton of character there. The ending is interesting. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, you you kind of pre-budded my argument there, I guess, but yeah, for me... (laughs) A little bit. For me, Flair is undone not just by Hogan's finish, but by his own backfired plan and Hogan's finish, so I do feel it does a lot to protect him. I take your point that he'd lost to Hogan a lot. Yes. But that doesn't change the fact that in this instance, they gave him an excuse.
1: No, i agree. Yeah, sure.
0: The large amount of people involved in this really let them involve a lot of variety in what was going on. So this ended up a very fun main event.
1: It is always nice to see Vader's moonsault, even if it doesn't give him the win.
0: Yes, it's still always amazing to see. Mm-hmm. I think my favorite spot in the match though may have been just after Hogan no sells the suplex and then Vader just plows into him on a back body drop. <laughs> yeah. Just knocking him flying, and you're like, when do you see that hap- happen with Hogan? That's that's an amazing thing. Yeah.
1: The whole flare attacks, Rain Savage's dad thing makes the feud more bitter between the two of them now. This would lead to a match, the great American bash between the pair. Well, weirdly, Hogan would not be on the next show, huh? Even though he's still world champion. Interesting. I think that makes to a point we made way back when we we're talking about the original Stark in Ninety Five. That yes, might have been a thing with dates. They had, they have set for so many dates, and they yeah, they didn't need him. They just didn't book him. So
0: I think that was yeah. That in his contract, they've got X number of dates. Yeah. So so they have to pick and choose, and maybe they should have thought about that when they were writing the contract, and then decided yeah. to make him world champ, but. You know, once once you've done that, you're kind of stuck with it. I don't know if they started planning more shows then afterwards or what, but... Yeah.
1: So, I guess in this case, they figured, hey, we got Savage and Flair. That's enough
0: to sell a show without Hogan. You, you clearly have a hot feud between the two of them, so... Yeah. No, I, I agree. Yeah. In the credits this time, I noticed we have Marty Lundy, i.e. Arne Anderson, the Senator Wrestling Operations, alongside Jody Hamilton, the Assassin, mm-hmm. and Janie Engel. Janie Engel. <laughs> I'm sure that's happened other times, but this is the first time that I noticed. Right. And with that, Slambury 1995 is done. So, overall thoughts on Slambury 1995?
1: I uh, thought it was a pretty good show overall. There's no, like, really bad matches on here. There's some where I can take them or leave them, like with the Ed Leslie-Kevin Sullivan match, or even the Wahoo-Dick Murdoch match. There's definitely some that were nice surprises. Uh, Arnest and Alex Wright was a good surprise. Mm-hmm. Even though I like both of them, I I didn't know how their chemistry would work in this match together. I thought it was a nice, nice delivery in that. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a lot of crowd reaction in the show, which is always good, like you mentioned before. It's one thing when you have a good show, but the crowd doesn't do anything. This one, even when there's matches, schools I didn't necessarily agree with, like having the Nasty Boys win the titles... The crowd really seems into it, so it mm-hmm. always that makes the show feel bigger than it is. I think is a big part of it. Yeah.
0: So bear that in mind. Promoters, Saint Petersburg crowds are good if of questionable judgment.
1: <laughs> yes. Assuming we'll to have crowds in the wrestling show again, that'll be important. <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> we're working on it. Or, I say we.
0: Someone is working on it. Well, just say you know if if, if you pull an AWA, then uh, just make sure you film the crowd in Saint Petersburg.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. We have plenty of sports bars you could film random B-roll for. <laughs> yes. But yeah, there's no disappointment in this show. For me, there's only a couple real big standouts. Really good shows obviously have, you know, hopefully every match being really good, or at least having, you know, four or five good ones. This one has a couple strong ones, so it's not a, like a huge recommendation, but there's some good stuff on here to, to seek out.
0: Mm-hmm. This was a somewhat more normal WCW show than 1993 and 1994. Yes. The Legends content was pretty much confined to just the one Legends match and the Hall of Fame ceremony, with the rest of the night exclusively for the current wrestlers. There was minimal mixing of content, with only Angelo Paffo really taking the time to comment on current stories. I guess maybe they got scared after ticking off uh, Thez and Ganya last year. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, that's true. It's a little disappointing to see the neat intermingling going away. It makes the show lose some of its unique feel, and it leaves it closer to the average WCW pay-per-view. Average may be the right word. We have some good matches and some middling ones, and only one that I'd call bad, but short. I don't think there's anything match-wise that's really going to stick with me after the show, other than maybe the Arn and Wright DDT spot. But that also means there's nothing that'll be memorably bad. Mm -hmm. Ironically, the most impressive thing on the night is probably the Hall of Fame ceremony. So despite the Legends content being cordoned off in its own part of the show, it still managed to stand out. The Hall of Fame this year is great, with Soli's induction and reaction the massive highlight. This might actually be my favorite of the Hall of Fame ceremonies with the added formality they brought to it this year. And it's very sad that it will also be the last. Mm -hmm. For other non-wrestling content, there were a ton of promo segments this year. They're almost all very good, with some exceptional. Hogan's and Savage's, Big Bubba's, and Sullivan's in particular, though all very different. There was some crazy variety in promos this year, and it felt like we heard from everyone we needed to hear from with the possible exception of Alex Wright. Actually, a post-match Alex Wright promo might have been neat, considering it was his first loss. The commentary felt a little strange, but that's honestly mostly a factor of me just expecting Tony. I felt more comfortable with Eric and Heenan on the second watch. Eric's interaction isn't as natural and conversational, and his constant need to call kicks by their official karate names can (laughs) grate. But he does a perfectly good job calling the events of a match, and he and Heenan do team up to really build up important story moments. It's never going to be my favorite commentary team, but it does its job and has some entertaining points. I guess if I had to put the difference between Tony Heenan and Eric Heenan, it might be that Tony feels like he's reacting, and Eric feels like he's thinking about how he needs to react they both work but the former feels more right overall again i'd say it's an average show there's nothing wrong with it but without the great night-long legends tone of the prior two slamborees this one feels a little lacking or just a little standard
1: yeah sure we don't get the uh,
0: procession of legends that is true Yep.
1: as well yeah
0: yeah It's fine, and a perfectly entertaining watch, but it probably won't stick in your memory. Match of the night and MVP, then. Al, your match of the night, please.
1: Okay, so for me, it comes down to either the Sting-Big Bubba match, which I thought was really good, or the R and Alex Wright match. Pretty solid competition, honestly, between the two of them. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I am leaning just a little more towards the Sting-Big Bubba match. They really used the crowd well. Ignoring the Bozik gimmick of the match, they found the table gimmick to use, and they spaced it out really well throughout the match. Yes. And used it for the finish in a creative way, so
0: give them credit for that. This is going to be fascinating. Okay. For me, it was between Sting versus Big Bubba, or Arn Anderson versus Alex Wright. (laughs) And I went with Arn Anderson versus Alex Wright.
1: Kind of guessed that.
0: It had a bit of a slow start, but it built to an action-packed match, featured a lot of subtle moments. In fact, I will admit I did not pick up on Arn using the tights repeatedly to escape headlots until the third watch. <laughs> and it did a ton to build up Alex Wright as a great competitor while still leaving Anderson a tough, canny ring veteran who hadn't lost a single thing. It's a fun watch with a terrific ending. But I, I totally agree with you, Sting versus Big Bubba was also excellent. And it was a very close call.
1: Yeah, it's good. It's good to have a a show where you have to actually really stop and think between the two or yeah. three matches. I'm I'm thrilled that we each gave
0: it to one of them rather than agreeing on it too. Honestly, because I think they both deserved honor.
1: Absolutely, yeah. MVP. All right. So from picking from the matches I liked, obviously Arn did a lot with his promo and his mannerisms throughout the match. That finished definitely the delivery of that definitely deserves uh, mention. Same with Alex Wright, um, even without doing anything promo-wise, he tells a lot of story throughout the match, which is helpful. Sting, obviously, as mentioned, really worked the crowd. Sam's Mm Big Bubba did. He worked a good match, and they had some great creativity in the spots they used. Going old school, the powder was a nice kind of touch randomly in the match as well, which I liked. I think just for the strong but short promo and his delivery throughout the match especially how the finish was done I'm giving a slight edge to Sting
0: okay yeah he's he puts on a terrific show and does a lot with a little repeatedly tonight exactly mine I think is going to surprise you okay I considered a lot of the people in the matches the the same way you were Mm -hmm. definitely agree on all your points there Mm -hmm. but I'm giving it to Gordon Sully okay. I know he didn't have a huge role tonight, but he did an excellent, excellent job hosting the Hall of Fame ceremony, which was my favorite part of the night. And his reaction to his induction will be the thing that stays with me from this show. Heartfelt, genuine, and beautiful. It was great to see him honored, so I figured I might as well honor him too. Yeah, I agree with that. And honestly... There's very few chances I get to give Gordon Soli an MVP.
1: That is also true.
0: You know, he's he's on the first two Starcades, I think it is. I believe so, yes. And then very infrequently featured in any capacity. And when he is, it tends to be minor.
1: And obviously, as we know, he's not going to be
0: featured in the next few shows. Yes. So I really, this this just felt like I should do that.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with that on that.
0: And that wraps up our review of Slamboree 1995. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about the breeze as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, or Verbal. D- that one's new.
1: I was going to say, I didn't hear that one before.
0: And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Next up, Slambery 96 what goes up must come down hard. No, no, seriously, that's what they went with.
1: Oh, okay, sure,
0: but why not? Slamboree 96 features the Lord of the Rings, an epic battle between the gathered forces of men, elves, and dwarves, advised by the wise Istari Gandalf against the forces of Mordor in the thrall of the Dark Lord Sauron.
1: Are, are, you, are you sure?
0: Oh, wait. So- sorry. It reads Lord of the Ring, not rings. Oh. So instead of some of the finest fantasy stories ever written, we get stuck with a battle bullshit.
1: Not not quite the same.
0: No. Shame. Sting would make a pretty good Aragorn.
1: Although, I will say, looking at the card, one of my favorite tag teams finally could show up properly on the show.
0: Oh, yeah? Yeah.
1: That is a public enemy.
0: Oh, screw you. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, on the note of Sting as Aragorn, Al, uh, next time, why don't we both come with our ideas for the WCW cast of Lord of the Rings? Okay, sure. It'll almost certainly be more fun making that list than watching a battle bull show. That's for sure.
1: That's yeah. It's hard to dispute that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> this is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgeon signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling.
1: We say Alec, right? He did. He did. Yes. Okay. Guess I'm a nickname for next show, huh?